You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith, and this is episode 300. And to celebrate, uh, after many of you have asked me over the last seven years of the life of this podcast, I have finally submitted the process myself. I am the guest on today's Comedians Comedian podcast. I'm being interviewed by, among others, Sarah Millican, Sindhu V, Tom Allen, and uh, there's some celebrity recorded messages dropping in as well. And also this interview is peppered with me answering quick fire questions taken from the Comedians Comedian podcast Facebook group. Um, I, I found this experience to be <laughs> very enjoyable and bruising and bits of it I didn't want to include on the show. But uh, I suppose if I've done my job well, then my guests often think, oh, I don't know if I should have said that. Uh, basically, after the shows, very frequently in the next 48 hours, a guest uh, after the interview, a guest will text me and say, uh, are you sure that was OK? Is this bit all right? And uh, I felt like doing that about numerous things that I said. So I think you've got a a decent version of the show. Thank you so much to all of my guests. Thanks to everyone for for their hard work and help in either recording with me in person uh, or interviewing me remotely. Uh, And thanks to everyone that submitted questions. There was something like 150 questions on the Facebook group. So I'm afraid I could only get to these 10 or 15 of my favourite ones. Um, And a quick thank you as well to the Angel Comedy Club at the Bill Murray in North London for their kind use of some recording space for a couple of these different interviews. Um, That is all. Join the Insiders Club if you would like to get hold of the the rushes, the full unedited interviews of the three men interviews with Sarah, Tom and Sindhu. Uh, We will put those all up there before too long, but Nathan's had a marathon job putting this together, so don't be surprised if they're not up there today uh, if you suddenly join in a rush, if you can bear to hear more of me talking about me. Um, But, you know, after 300 episodes of trying to be invisible and disappear into the background in the interviews, uh, I felt it was my time. So you can join the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, as you well know, and support the show with a regular monthly donation that gives you access to all of the extra content, and there is absolutely loads of it now. That is all that there is to say before we jump into it. I'm sort of prevaricating now and trying to put it off. So without further ado, this is Stuart Goldsmith. Me. Hello, Mr. Goldsmith. Ricky Gervais here, international superstar, philanthropist and regular listener to your lovely podcast. Um, Love all the interviews, obviously very entertaining and interesting, Um, but sometimes they sort of 
make you think. And uh, I've picked up bits of advice uh, that make me, you know, approach my own work differently. Gary Delaney, for example, talking about the principles of comedy. Um, what's one thing that you've heard in one of your interviews that made you change your outlook or a great bit of advice that you use and is useful? Um, cheers. God, people ask me this all the time. Like, what have you actually learnt? I don't know if I've actually learned anything. There are loads of things I do now, little kind of things along the way, like the Pomodoro technique, you know, write for 25 minutes and have five minutes off, or the fact that most Americans seemed after a few years to be saying, I just do all my writing on stage. That really made me think, that must be a thing. I never thought that writing on stage was a thing. And actually having the the ability to create for myself a... Uh, a safe environment in which to fail and leap into it and fairly regularly fail, fairly regularly fail in an interesting way that then throws up more honest, truer things that I actually think and that I actually want to talk about. That is definitely something I've learned from the podcast. I, 99% of my creative development, it has been about getting out of my own way because I feel like a creative person kind of trapped in the the sort of mind of someone who who doesn't believe in themselves and um and i i mean this is already a fairly masturbatory experience but if i make myself cry on this as i sit alone in a room recording it uh that would be too much but i think i think that's true i think that learning to trust myself oh god what is this the end of a movie i i think that is the biggest thing i've taken from the podcast it's it's kind of a meta tip it's not anything anyone has said specifically that i remember i'm sure people have touched upon it but it is the weight of having to of having spoken to so many comics in depth about what they how they see the point of creativity and their relationship to creativity the weight of that has made it much harder not to believe in myself <laughs> does that count as a tip that's my answer i i trust myself now more than i ever did to be on stage with nothing and trust that something funny will come out of my mouth and often that's funnier than the thing i've kind of cribbed over and and kind of worked on and tried to fix which isn't to say that it doesn't require any sitting down working, but the basis, the like the, the beginning, the, the, the concrete foundation of any bit now is funnier than anything I would have written before if it, it, I blurted it out on stage. So that is the thing I've learned. Thank you, uh, celebrity listener Ricky Gervais. First up, Sarah Millican. Hello, I'm Sarah Milliken, and you are listening to ComComPod, a comedian to comedian podcast. And uh, today I'm talking to, <laughs> the only time I've done this, uh, Stuart Goldsmith, who is, uh, you are ComComPod, as uh, everybody already knows. I sort of want to know initially how you feel about this process. How do you feel about being grilled? Now, you've put yourself up for it, but at this moment in time, how do you feel? Uh, I feel a bit exposed, even though, <laughs> even though, as I, even though two, there's two big, even those. One, I have control of the edit. Yes. Um, and two, but I, I have control of the edit brackets, and I also, but I know that the best stuff is kind of warts and all. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. like I don't want it to be. There's no but point also, in doing it. Whatever all you could out, I'll still hear it with my ears. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, there is that. There is that. Um, and also. 
Uh, what was I going to... My second point was... I can't remember my second point. This is That's the thing I'm most worried about, is <laughs> revealing how full of holes my memory is and how all over the place I am. Oh, I, oh like a normal person. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But, um, but uh, I, I remembered my point. It is that I ask everyone to do this, so I feel a certain amount of... like. If I'm not... Like, I started to feel a bit cowardly about not doing it. People have asked me to do this. Neil Peters, a big listener and fan of the show, uh, he asked me to do this for episode 100. I saw that on the Facebook. Yeah, yeah. yes. Um, And uh, and I should say that's because uh, Sarah received a copy of the questions from the Facebook group, not because she's a member of the Facebook group. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Um, But because I... I could have done it, but I'd always... It's not that I've chickened out. I also... Look, part one of my things is trying to be humble, but the fact that I have to try to be humble is <laughs> sort of, you know, it's been, I'm massively arrogant, and I, I feel I do a half-decent job of concealing that on the show because I try and be invisible. Yes. And so now having to actually... Like, it's... I've grown accustomed to the safety of being invisible in the show. Yes. And so no I more invisibility. That... Cloak off. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Okay. Well, I'm going to start. I've got a number of questions, and we might get to all of them, or we might not. We'll see. Sure thing. Um, I'd like, first of all, to know where and when do you write? And I want you to give me answers for pre-kids and post-kids, because I suspect your work and life is massively different now. Yes, massively. This year, I'm not writing because I'm doing a work in progress, so I haven't written it yet. So all the writing I've done this year has been one terrifyingly stressful four-hour period on the morning of my... Uh, the morning of February 22nd when I did the Leicester Comedy Festival. Of course. And I promised in the blurb, I said, my guarantee to you is I will not have written one stitch of this show until the morning of the performance. What an odd guarantee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know, I know. But I just wanted to... I, just wanted to, I hope this isn't going to be good. <laughs> I wanted to commit myself to it for the sake of the experiment, the experiment yes. being, can I get the monkey off my back? Like, if this works, I never need to spend September to February feeling stressed that I've got to do it all over again. I would love to end up... Part One of the plans is I would love to end up being the, the never-finished guy. So it's always me versus myself trying to... Trying to get to the stuff because me attempting and sometimes failing to get to the stuff Mm. is full of glorious, happy accidents. I find it invigorating in a way that when something really works, I get bored very easily. If it's like that is a big, solid bit, I'm like, well, as soon as it's finished, I don't want to do it anymore. Mm. Um, And do you think you would get that reaction from the audience for both parts if both parts were that rather than just the second part? Because you don't have the kind of... We've got our money's worth. I mean, I, if this. I sort of plot it, if I had to do one tomorrow night that was like t- two hours either side of an interval and it was all off the index cards, because it's just index yeah. cards with one or two words on them, the fewer words the better. Um, if I had to do that, my instinct now is, well, obviously I'd need an opening bit. I'd need like a, a reliable opening bit. Even if I didn't do it, I'd need to know that I could fall back on a reliable opening yeah. bit in order to have the confidence to leap in and go, hey, I've got nothing. I saw Tommy Turner do his show. Oh, I great. don't remember which one it was called. It was a few years ago when I interviewed him. And uh, I saw him in the the ballroom of the Gilded Balloon, and it was the one where he was trying to not say anything that he'd said before. Wow! And I did I did this thing with my son the other day. We were we was, he's got these paint sticks. Highly recommend paint sticks. It's like painting, but they're just like they're like a sort of fat wax crayon, except it's paint in a tube. Oh, so you just okay. smear them all around the place. They're super convenient for the uh, for the fast moving parent who's got a show to write. Um, <laughs> and. Um, and so we we work on the same thing at the same time. So he's painting and I'm painting on the same page, and we're kind of going around each other and sort of you know playing with the colours and stuff. 
And he, obviously, because he's a three and a half, is doing really wildly, enjoyably expressive, inventive things. And I'm going, oh, that's a straight line, and that's a corner, and that's a circle. Yeah. That's a, but, you know, it, it, it's my creativity for painting is super numbed. I haven't done it for years, and not to a high standard before that. So I tried as an experiment to try and make a mark I'd never made before. So that was the game I was ah. playing for myself. Christ, it's hard, and my stuff was all rubbish. And then just, there was one little moment where I was like, oh, I've never kind of done that. And I was like, oh, I feel a bit like an artist. Because I, I, I used to like painting at school, but the teachers always said we had to do a pencil outline, and that's when I lost interest, because of the pencil outline. Because I then it becomes a task. I just wanted to paint and slap stuff on. Sure. And I, I don't think I ever said, like, Picasso didn't do a pencil outline, but I think I was thinking something along those yeah, lines. I, of like, why can't we just... Free form. I just want to slap stuff on. Yeah, I love slapping totally. stuff on, and it, I and love it gets them. Kind of bru- it gets kind of pushed out of you when you're a kid. Yeah, I think. And, and in 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 the in comedy terms, because the rela- you know you you wouldn't be able to do it on telly. Well, maybe Phil Kay would, or maybe Ross Noble would, but mm. um, but you can't really do that stuff on telly. But I'm not on telly often. You know, this is a live thing. It's yeah. the audience and me, and I love doing it. It gives it sort of feeds my soul. And those moments when I'm going. Like, okay, <laughs> I got a bit about ringworm. And I just kept kind of going, okay, it just kept coming off on a card and I couldn't have anything to say about it. I was like, Ring, ringworm. Okay, no. And you know what I mean? Yes. Kind of going back into the stuff and then every so often hitting the card again and going, right, ringworm. Like, <laughs> let's get into this and now. And that will become a punchline. Because I, I hope just, so. Yeah, of course. But is there a way, is there a happy medium between the two? Is there something where you could have a little bit of control so that there's a guarantee it's going to go well, but that maybe the order or the level of um, polishedness of bits is different. So maybe somebody in the audience, maybe they shout out a number and that's the next bit that you do and you have to try and link it back to a bit before. Is there something, is there a a, a more... um, Something you could charge a bit more for (laughs) because you can't charge... A po- the same for a polish show as an unpolished show, I think. Well, I... But polish, the terms in which you're talking there are, like, if it's... Un- in your world, if it's unpolished, it isn't ready to charge X pounds for. Yeah. But for me and the level at which I'm working, it could be. It, do you know what I mean? It yeah. could be... Un- what Maybe what they'll come for is to see... Me attempt to polish. Let's not mention turds, but do you know what I mean? <laughs> like I can't say escape, isn't it? But but do you know what I mean? Like the the unpolishedness. It's almost like I don't want it to end up polished. I want it to be good. Like my favourite new bit at the moment yeah, is I've got me. a bit about parkour, and all the bit is I. It's my. F- I'll describe it first, and then I'll tell you why it's my favourite. My godson is uh, thirteen, fourteen soon, and. Um, he does he does parkour and you know he's really good. He does like standing backflips and stuff. He's, he's proper wow. circusy and great. Um, and on the way to describing a conversation we had about a Spotify playlist he listens to when he's training. So I'm talking about that bit on stage in an unpolished, improvisy way. I started saying he does uh, parkour. You know that um, it's like French jumping, and that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And that just fell into me. And and I've tried to write material about parkour a couple of years ago to no avail. Never went anywhere. So then, I, you know, it's French jumping. And then I just jump around the stage in a pathetic way, saying French things. And it's one of my... It's probably my funniest new bit. And I love it because it feels honest. 
an accidental, and I have tricked myself, I've tricked the editor inside my head that constantly goes, oh, that isn't good enough, I'd better fall back on trying to make it clever. This isn't, I'm not good enough, I'd better, I'd better structure something, I'd better have a, a pun or some wordplay or some sort of... Some some sort of... Structure, almost, Some sort of on. structure to hang it on. This is just, no, this is a game. And I want to just, I want to go on. I want to come out of Edinburgh this year with a, a, a bag with 15 or 20 games in it that are just as funny as, you know, French yeah. jumping. And you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And that's... Because then that would be a thing that didn't need to be polished because the 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 kernel of the idea is already zing. It's on fire. Yes. You know, it's like, there's that, I'm going to throw that one down. Boom, that explodes. Now I'm yeah. going to throw that one down. Boom. Polish doesn't really come into that yeah. analogy. But the fact that you're doing it repeatedly will mean that the edges will be knocked off. Or are you trying to train yourself out of that? Well, I am trying. I'm trying. And I find it so hard because all of my instincts... You know, ten years a street performer, it was all constantly refining. I mean, different type, different shows yeah. along the way. I had sort of two main shows, um, and it just—I'm very good. I'm very good at fake mistakes, and I <laughs> hate myself now. I hate myself. And if you add, if you do a fake mistake again and add to it again, then it's legit. It's still funny stuff, but you're still riding the wave of they think it's gone wrong, and you know. I feel like this is a show, though. I feel like. I think this could be your shtick of of some that it's never fully finished. I love the idea of it never being fully fi- and that you would constantly be adding to and every time you had a funny thought you'd try and slot it in in some way or another. And it's constantly evolving. But also you just have to untrain your brain to only be yeah. happy when it's finished. <laughs> so what you're suggesting is <laughs> I try to be less happy in order to be more artistically oh, creative. this question is coming. This, oh, mate, this, this is... Um, it is it is funny, isn't it? I, I, I'm so interested in whether... And I know we, we keep talking about material, not yep. the podcast itself, but that question of whether my guests are happy, whether people mm. are happy, is so important to me because there is this. there's these two cores in me which are like must be funny and good and creative and, you know, kind of honour yeah. the thing. Like, it's it's a calling, and I want to honour the calling. And it really would be nice to be happy. <laughs> and the more people I speak to who... The more I see that happiness and success are not as related... Or they're not related in the same way that no. I thought they were. No. I It's... We'll, we'll come back to it. Well, because... Let's come back to that. Let's put a pin in it for now. But I think... I think if it's more satisfying... For you to do a show that is unfinished, then that is easy. That is do- totally doable. That you just that becomes your thing. And if that's ultimately, you know how there's some comics who can't do like you know the churning thing. So you do five minutes, your first five minutes, and then you think every gig has to be different when you first yeah, start. Yeah, yeah. So you do a shit five minutes somewhere else, and you don't get booked for a ten yeah. because you did a shit. When somebody pulls you aside, usually a nice comic who's been going a bit longer, and says, "Oh no, you just keep doing it until it's really good, and then you extend, but mm-hmm. you don't necessarily churn it all the time." I feel like you could. This satisfying. See, I love a new material gig. They're my favorite gigs because this is exactly what you're talking about. And if they're the, your the favorite ex- gigs, yeah, you should do. I mean, you know, I don't mean you. Oh but no, if because the- what happens to me as soon as I start riffing, my it's almost like my script taps me on the shoulder and goes, "You're not very good at this." 
Yeah. Start the show. Sure, Start sure, the sure, show. sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You can do this for two minutes and then you need to... Because yeah. I need the safety, but as a former street performer, you aren't keen on safety. Well, I'm... It's... I am trying to break my addiction to safety. I think I always feel like you are a safe pair of hands, and that doesn't. People always it's don't a take knife that in my heart. No, no, no. But I feel like whatever. So, in one of your shows that I listened to, mm-hmm. when the woman shouted out, "You're all weak!" <laughs> oh <laughs> Which yeah, is yeah, yeah, glorious. Yeah, that's lovely. I left that in. That was but great. I at no point thought, "Oh God, what's he going to do?" Sure. Because sometimes, but sometimes when I watch people, I think, "What's she going to do? What's he going to do?" Or, "Fuck." This is this is going to completely derail the script, or this is how I don't know if he knows how to do it. I don't know if she knows how to do it. Okay. And I never feel that with you. And I think it's the, it's the biggest compliment. I don't say this to many people, but I feel like whatever happens, you're ready. And when you said uh, something like, "If you'll forgive me, I'm going to go back into the prepared material," <laughs> yeah. I just thought, I love that you showed your workings out. You didn't even weave it in and think, "Hey, she's, he's just chatting." You were. I've written stuff. I'm going to go back to that now mm. because whatever's happening over there is not my not my circus, not my monkeys. Sure. And I I feel like is that trust that the audience have in you instantly? Is that something you fake initially until it grows? Or do you have that when you walk out? You're a very confident man. Do, but is it faked? Or do you go out and feel that confident? OK, well, first let me apologise for committing the cardinal sin of having forgotten that thing that I improvised that is indeed on an album. I forget which one. So I forgot that thing that I'd said and then you reminded me of the thing I've said and it genuinely made me laugh. I laughed at my own thing that I said it's, once. It's <laughs> properly funny. You're I, allowed to. I, I, I re- genuinely you know, apologise. You know the reason... So Gary and I have had this discussion. When comics say who their favourite comic is, it should always be themselves. And it's always, oh, it's, you know, it's Tom Stater, whoever it is. Mm-hmm. And it should always be themselves because you are the only person who has the exact same sense of humour as you so (laughs) I watched a show of a friend's and I laughed so hard at one particular joke and afterwards I said to him god that was funny he said you gave me that (laughs) (laughs) but that's because I thought it was hilarious I gave him it and I still think it's hilarious and then forgot it and then went perfect (laughs) what a great joke what a great line well done me so 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 to the question and um, I also had just a brief not quite tangent on being a safe pair of hands. I think you've put it in a really lovely way. I want them to feel safe. I want. I don't mind the audience. That's not a knife in my heart that the audience feels yeah. safe. The phrase to me, a safe pair of hands, I suppose, does mean that. But I don't want to be safe because that. I don't want me to be safe because well, that's sort of. Icky. I don't think you necessarily are. I don't as much as anybody no, I'm, else. Definitely not. No, but I feel like. When I watch you or listen to you, yeah. when that... I mean, obviously, I'm listening to a recording, so it's different because it's not live. But at no point did I think, oh, God, sure. somebody's chipped in. Yeah. And the same... But I wonder if that's partly from a experience of comparing as well, where shit does happen that you have to deal with mm. because you're not necessarily scripted when you're comparing. Is it fake? Do I fake the confidence when I walk out there? Often, yes, I think. Uh, I am not... I'm not walking around backstage kind of, you know, I always think well, I don't not a twat. I don't smoke, but I always imagine some people just put a cigarette out, <laughs> stamp on it and walk straight on. I'm not one of them. Yeah. Like I've got it's not rituals, but like I can't have eaten too recently because then I'll be digesting and there won't be enough yeah. blood in my brain That's to make stuff up. Sensible. Yeah, yeah, yeah sensible stuff. Yeah. Um so I'm I'm not 
confident. I suppose as soon as I get a laugh, I'm confident. As soon as they, as soon as as soon as I get a laugh, I'm confident. It's wind in the sails. Yeah. And I think one of the big skills that I don't possess is to be able to feel that before they've laughed. And I hope I I'm know. getting better at that. I don't know if anybody has that. I don't have that. But if, can I you imagine out. how good you'd be? If, oh, if, how unbearable you you'd be backstage. <laughs> <laughs> but how I... single you'd be. <laughs> Hello, Stuart. This is Nish Kumar, stand-up comedian, friend, your ex-flatmate, a former guest of the podcast and person who is regularly mentioned on the podcast. Uh, my question for you um, is about your stand-up. Now, I probably first saw you do stand-up in about 2009, maybe, uh, and I saw you most recently uh, earlier this year. So in the decade of watching you do stand-up, I think two things. I think the most recent time I saw you is you were doing the best stuff I've seen you do, um, but I've also perceived a shift in the tone of your stand-up from sort of anecdotal you know, stories about your life, all that kind of stuff, into maybe more um, observational stand-up and certainly more routines around a single subject that wring all the jokes out of them. Now, is that a conscious shift you've made in the writing of your stand-up? Or perhaps do you think it's a consequence of you being happier and more settled in your personal life? Yeah, that's right. I just turned it back round on you. Are you happy, Stu? How do you feel about that, you punk? Thank you, Nish. Yes, it is a, a conscious shift. I am less interested in saying, hey, this funny thing happened to me, and more interested in going, let's look at what this subject really is. What does this really mean? Those subjects are always things that have occurred to me. Um, so there is still, you know, it's born of autobiography still, but I'm much less interested now in stories because I I would rather someone just went, bang, there's my take, and the story element of this bit of stand-up is contained within the take. The cont- it's contained within the character. Mamet. Oh, I read lots of Mamet. I don't. I read two or three books years ago and they made a big impression on me. Um, David Mamet says the the actions taken, you know, when actors look at a film script and go, hmm, who's my character? The character is the actions your character takes. That's who their character, that's what their persona is. It's just what they do. There's no point going, hmm, are they Belgium? Do they ever, do they learn to dance? You know, the what the script gives you are the actions they take. And so they are the sort of person who does those actions. And that's all you've got. And I think in, in terms of stand-up, there's something parallel to that whereby... I want to see, I want to know who you are, not from you telling me who you are, but from the way you approach a topic and the way you, it's not about me trying to get all the funny bits out of something. It's just, I want to keep laying the, the, the tracks as I, as the train moves, you know, is it a consequence of being happier? I don't know. It's, it's a hand in hand. It's in tandem with being happier because I suppose I'm happier because I feel more like myself and definitely my act is better, my work is better because I feel more like myself. I feel older, I feel more experienced and I feel like I'm being myself and inhabiting myself rather than trying to be myself. And if you can imagine what it's like to spend your life trying to be yourself, you'll have some insight into my world. Ian Wood says, do you hate bees? Of course not. I love the humble bee. I am upset that this meme has taken off. I genuinely love bees. Tom Smith says, do you think you were funnier before you became a dad? Absolutely not, Tom. I'm way funnier since becoming a dad because my life is harder and I have more to complain about. And that, it turns out, is a very rich seam. 
Sarah Elizabeth Jones says, do you enjoy comedy more or less because of the lens ComCom Pod has put on it? Terrific question, Sarah. Thank you. Um, I still really enjoy it, but now it's work, <laughs> which, you know, you've got to do work. Um, I love watching people who've already been on the show because I don't need to, I can, it helps me relax my sort of critical faculties. I certainly don't enjoy it less. You were talking with the Marcus Birdman thing. He said he doesn't like it when people interrupt because it ruins the rhythm. Mm. And that I thought that was fascinating that he'd been a drummer and then he was a performance poet and it was all mm. about rhythm to him. And he didn't want to be interrupted. Now I think that you are good at being interrupted. Doesn't mean you can't. Doesn't mean <laughs> you can't well then put. go back to the joke. Sure. But you are a sort of magpie in that you're like somebody chipping in is an opportunity to you where to me and Marcus Birdman it's an interruption sure there is definitely an element of that I would like to be more like that mm. um, I don't know I mean magpies traditionally thieving birds I don't know quite where they're <laughs> the well thing. looking for yeah. shiny things sure, is that yeah. a different bird easily distracted that no that bird? is a magpie that oh, is a magpie okay. yes. I thought I got my birds mixed up um, I, I didn't do enough prep about the birds <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry you had, you've had seven years <laughs> um, so uh, yes and I would like to be even more like that. Mm. Like, I, you know, absolutely, I'm capable of doing that. There are often very funny moments when I do that. And I'm happy to, I'm increasingly these days, happy to ditch the bit. Because look, if they're all laughing, the job is done. Yeah. Or the job is happening. Something is happening. The ball is in the air. This is all good. Um, I do enjoy those. I'm not always in the mood for it. It's not always an appropriate bit of material. Mm. Um, and I, you know... I do have certain bits that I'm like, if you just shut up and listen, this is a really good bit. Oh, you know? interesting, yeah. So um, it depends where it comes and what it, de- it is. It depends where but it comes. Initially, but initially, you don't, I, I don't feel yeah. any panic. I tell you what, I would rather be interrupting myself. I will be funny and creative if I'm interrupting myself yeah. and tripping myself up because then I get all of the joy of trying to clamber out of the well, you know, all of whatever also, that is. you can time it so it doesn't kill a punchline. Yes, I can. Now it's time to interrupt myself. But yeah. it, no, no, but it might. I can interrupt myself and kill a punchline and get somewhere better, you know. Right. So, yeah. so that's okay. Um, that's part of the free form and sort of the kind of easier, less structured way, yes. I suppose. In, interruptions is a really good way of thinking of it because it's not just them interrupting me. I, I like the idea of interrupting myself and I like the idea of deliberately trying to interrupt myself, trying yeah. to knock myself off balance in order to overreach. Almost sort and... of going with your thought process, kind of allowing it to yes, sort of jump in every now and again yes. while your mouth is working. Yeah. Well, yeah sometimes yeah. on stage your mouth is working and your brain's going, I'm going to have some chips soon. <laughs> <laughs> but when you do those kinds of shows, your brain is very in the moment, isn't it? It has to be. Yes, yes. Because you don't know what's coming next and you don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. I feel like those would be exhausting shows. <laughs> I Yeah, I think they would. That's probably good, isn't it? You, you don't want to come yeah. off not tired. Um, I, I think I as like well... I plan what I'm having for my tea, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always oh, there. Is there anything nicer than getting back to the car and realising you've got some hot pasta in a flask? Oh, what a treat. <laughs> there's, no, there's no rules. No one says you can't put pasta in a flask. Um, so, yeah, and, and also there's another element to the work I'm sort of doing at the moment, which is that I am trying to discover, like not to contrive, I think it's a mm. true thing, I'm trying to discover a sort of warm disdain 
because my tendency, because <laughs> I like them and I want them to like me, yeah. is to try and be liked. And that's kind of a bit deathly because I sort of have an element of that naturally. They do like me until I tell them they like me and then they fucking hate me. <laughs> um, that is, a, that is, a, that's a that is always a misstep. But actually being high status and saying mean, unreasonable things mm. within the within the kind of warmth that I have on stage can be really funny, really like mm. bone kind of like, oh, that's, I mean, that's outrageous, but it kind of, woof. Yeah. And, um, and so trying to do that, trying to maintain that flavour, which I'm really into, um, whilst also being flappy and interrupty and, you know what I mean? Like being, like really bouncing between high and low status mm. because you're like, oh, what about this bit? Bang. Oh, I didn't like that. You know what I mean? Like this. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Oh, I'm really, I'm, yeah, I'm very it's exciting. I yeah. feel like it would be terrifying and exciting to be in the audience. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, they do. They just, it always goes better than the yeah. first half. It always goes better. But that's because you're enjoying yourself more, partly. I you think material you're right. gigs, you always have a bit more energy, like, ooh, this bit might work. Yeah. Whereas when you when it's horned stuff, there's a rhythm to it. You've found all the little nooks and crannies, you've found all the twiddly bits, and yeah. it's expertly delivered because you've done it 200 times or whatever, and you're not as excited about it, yes. even if it's a better joke. Yes. So what I so. tried to do when I did the Soho run of End Of a month or two ago, um, I really, it got better and better. I loved those shows. And I've always, historically, Soho is not, I don't, it's not that I struggle there, but I struggle there and I don't want to admit it. Um, I've often struggled at Soho. I find London shows harder than other places. Certainly when you've been doing outside London. Oh, People yeah. in London, they're a bit too cool for school. They're a bit like, this is one of my options tonight. And I've actually seen Yeah, I always things. think they're sitting thinking, well, I could be at Stomp right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why aren't you bashing some binlets? A, a charmingly anachronistic <laughs> go-to. Um, I hear... Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. But the the most recent one I did, the the weekend of doing um, end of, it started great and it got better and better. And the third one was like I I, I la- uh, here's an admission. I labelled the file in my phone and record them all. And I labelled it EOD, uh, uh, e- which is my little three digit code for this year's show. End of for some reason. EOD. I don't know. That's not technically an acronym. EOD. Uh, the show I set out to write. Because that was the one I was oh. like, that one. And I've got oh, loads I, more. I've got, got a break now and then I, it restarts in October. That's a better title than I thought. I thought you were going to be like, bunch of zingers. Oh, just, <laughs> I am excellent. I am really great. <laughs> yeah, but it did. It felt like it. I and, am so good at this. And, and the, reason, the reason I say that is because I, that run in particular and this tour in particular, I have been far less a slave to the stuff. And I've been much more playful okay. on stage because the stuff is a little bit more like that parkour bit. That's for next year. But yeah. it's a bit more like this idea is funny, so I don't have to say the precise words. I can twiddle them because the idea is funny. Because it's not based on that word plus that word equals that word. Exactly. It's much Apart less... from one line, which okay. I have to revise before I go oh, on stage. Okay. To make uh, sure. Which is watching a rodent embody a metaphor about self-improvement while all the lights in my house go out one by one. And I have to say it exactly <laughs> like that or the whole bit's fucked. I loved your French bit uh, about the frog. I that like was that. Oh, my God, I just wanted to just rewind it and listen to it again and again and again. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's... I think a listener asked the question, what's your favourite bit to do? Um, and uh, apologies if you are that listener and your name is not in front of me at the moment. But... Um, that is one of my favourite bits to do because it was... I, I often would say, 
not in a fake mistake way, but I often I would relish pointing out after doing that bit, I would say something along the lines of next year, one hour, just the frog bit. You know what I mean? I love that. Just that's a kind of Richard Herring yeah. style kind <laughs> yeah. of uh, a ludicrous challenge. But I, I, I sort of for those who do not know the bit, it's available on YouTube in the show. Like I mean it. Um, but it's me putting a frog through, explaining like the premise is that. French chefs are so cruel, they'll do anything. The more the animal suffers, the better the flavour. And so it's a French chef with a stupid French accent delivering, like, this awful plan. It's, it becomes based on the film Old Boy. I don't know if you got that reference. Oh, no, I didn't. It's so an, I got it anyway. Yeah, you, well, that's, <laughs> yeah, well, that's the lovely yeah. thing about it. There's, like, an, ex, there's an extra little hat tip for oh. people who, are, who like, get like that, that reference. But... Um, but putting this frog through a nightmare in order that's a flavour is exquisite. Heart. Yeah, 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 exactly. We and then we break his heart. And I, I love doing that, and it's silly and playful. It's like the French jumping. Is it just I, French? Maybe no, I'm just funny and French. I think when you said that, it made me think, and not just the French thing, just that it feels like a playful thing that is a joy to deliver. Yes, and I know that the last punchline of that yeah. um, is definitely going to work, so I can just luxuriate in the bit. Yeah. And, and change really, it up if you want, because yeah. if you know you've got that safety net at the end of the big punch. Love it. Yeah, Favourite totally. stuff. Favourite okay. stuff. By the time the frog is driving away in a small red car singing out of it, there is no way that me of ten years ago could have sat in front of a... sat by my laptop... Kind of, and then the frog will drive away in a small red car. That's nonsense. I could never get there. So, how did you get there on stage? Did you do it definitely on, stage? on stage? Definitely on stage, and definitely as a result of doing new material in the second half, having an idea of like mm. frog torture and it growing, and and it growing and growing. I was going to ask how you build a show, but I think I know now how you do it. I, I although this is, yeah, in terms of building it, I now get the best bits and I try and put them in an acceptable order and I try that the I try and have the bits be good enough that the order doesn't matter and then it naturally solidifies right I get very angsty and hand ringy about oh, historically that has to go there and that's there and that has to go there and like I'm like oh because I'm really into the structure and I think no probably what it is is I'm a bit I don't know if I'm bad at structure, but I'm just a bit overwrought about structure. Mm. And I don't think that serves me doing French jumping. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it, yeah. I, I think the structure I need to have will serve silly, playful stuff. And I tell you what, it, it's not that the, the dad dies at 40 minutes, but I do always say something a bit serious that... A year or two after, I always think, ah, oh, I shouldn't have kept that serious bit in. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was there for me. That was, or I was, like, I did a show about anxiety or the stuff about anger that's in, mm. in that's in, uh, like, I mean it. I was feeling that. And the show, look, it's my art and I can say what I like. And I thought it would be yeah. useful and cathartic to say that stuff. And was it's, it not? It's, yeah, it was super useful. It's just never the funniest bit. It's like, it is, it no, is comedy it... as therapy. I'm completely guilty of that because I write about what's fascinating me. And I write about what I'm struggling with. And it genuinely has a therapeutic value. And I'm much happier now because I've done shows about a lot of the things I've struggled with. But I'll bet on the receiving end of that, you've helped people as well. It's nothing wrong with making people think as well as laugh. The problem I have is when it's just the thinking. <laughs> when yeah, people sure. replace jokes with meaning. Yeah. No, no, oh, there's no. always jokes. There's exactly. always, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, do, I have. Uh, so my first Edinburgh show, I asked lovely Steve Day, who I adore, yes, for any tips, and he said you've got to give something away. 
And I said, oh, I've got badges. And he said, <laughs> no, from in here. Mm-hmm. And I realised that, you know, not, not for everybody. So Gary does an hour of one-liners. You don't find anything out about him because that's what he does. But I think if you are working through something, then that's the meat. To me, that's always my meat, where the rest is my veg. My veg are funny. My meat has a bit more heft to it. So I don't know how to make this vegan. I'm so sorry. I'm immediately <laughs> So I feel like if you want to put that bit in, you put that bit in. Well, no, this is the only job in the world where nobody tells you what to do. Yeah, you're right. You're <laughs> right. But I, I just, I, I, what I'm always wanting to do is for the bit that is me working through a thing. I want that to be as funny as the frog yeah. bit, and oh, it no, isn't nothing, ever as yeah. funny as the frog bit. But can it have more weight to it? So therefore, if it's eight out of ten funny, and there's another bit that's silly and jumping about, and that's ten out of ten funny. Yeah. But the eight out of ten funny makes people go, oh. And they go away and they maybe feel like they're not alone in something. Surely eight plus two of heft equals ten anyway. I do want that and it does happen. But it can't always be as funny because of the subject matter, because of the heft of it, the weight of it, because of the seriousness I mean, that bit in Like I Mean It is so strange because I'm going, you know that bit when you're screaming with rage alone in your car and... Like, it turns out not everyone does that. <laughs> I really thought everyone did that. I really thought everyone did. Maybe they're all lying and they d- don't won't admit it. But this comes back to an absolute preoccupation of mine. I do not know whether I'm an insider or an outsider. That's why I love asking people that on the podcast, because I don't know. I look and sound like an insider. I look like a, like a, a, you know, a member of the world, of society. Yeah. But I feel like... I, and I absolutely feel much more like I belong these days. But I have always felt like, like I could, I could get caught out by saying, "Oh, you know, I was just screaming alone with rage in my car," you know, and and suddenly the room, the people in a social situation would look at me like, "What?" And I go, "Oh, I've misread. I'm not but normal." But that's different to doing that on stage. You do that on stage, they, it, it, they, a, they don't know if it's true. B, they don't know if it's like an effect, like affectation, like you're saying it to make them think a thing about you. Yeah. But also, when I heard that, I didn't, I don't do that, but I thought, oh, I clearly can though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, job done. Job done, Mum. Hello, Stuart. James Lancaster here. I'm walking the streets of Ketchum, recording a question for you. Uh, my question is, uh, what advice or writing tips and techniques, uh, anything to do with stand-up comedy, really, uh, have you taken away from ComCom interviews, tried to employ in your own stand-up, only to find that they're completely useless? Thanks, James. I looked into neuro-linguistic programming. <laughs> that's a thing that's come up, NLP has come up on the show once or twice. I looked into it. Uh, a listener who I very much, uh, Tony is his name, uh, very much enjoyed talking to for a while. He was sort of doing some coaching with me in NLP and I don't know that it really stuck. Uh, I like him very much and uh, enjoyed our conversations. But I, one of the tips I would love to take from the podcast is how you can sort of permanently cure your anxiety (laughs) you can kind of reframe the world um and i suppose i have to a small extent i've been doing that as i go 
Um, but not in any kind of, I love the idea of being able to sort of train yourself, to kind of hypnotize yourself into thinking more efficiently or with less, fewer barnacles, you know, um, because I think the thing that most hamstrings me is a lack of self-belief or a lack of <laughs> here is now a white middle-class man talking about how he doesn't really feel entitled to success <laughs> um i don't know i just i feel like uh, i i feel like i have historically aimed too low out of a desire for safety and this isn't really answering your question anymore james sorry but um i think tom stade said on the show if you want to be a star fucking act like one and not that I ever tried <laughs> to do that but I think he's right I think if we look at some of the guests who've been on the show who have a sort of genuine star quality they just don't give a fuck what anyone thinks and I give a fuck what anyone thinks whatever maybe not everyone yeah probably everyone so that there we go that's my answer uh, Tom states if you want to be a star fucking act like one I can't I can't act like a star so maybe I'm only maybe I'm necessarily only aiming for a modest level of success. God, that's galling. But I tell you what, it, I mean, this is good self-interview technique, isn't it? Because that's the sort of thing I'd be texting to me two days later saying, can we lose that bit? I felt we're vulnerable. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Nathaniel Metcalf. What I'd like to know is if Stuart Goldsmith was not the host of the Comedian's Comedian podcast, would Stuart Goldsmith, the comedian, already have featured on it? Um, I think what I mean by this is is this idea of interviewing yourself um, like a fun idea for the 300th episode or is there something internally that has made you think this would be the point that I would deserve to be on a podcast like this if I was not me I would ask a comedian like Stuart Goldsmith to be on it um, and has this changed now is this a recent uh, realisation or has something changed in the last year or two that's made you go you've sort of achieved something in your head that makes you think you would now be a great subject for the podcast 
I suppose I am. Uh, I'm. I am appearing on this podcast mostly as a as a fun thing. The idea struck me as novel. I think three hundred's a good special sort of a number. Um, it, you know, it'll be it'll be uh, two hundred more episodes till something has the same sort of uh, ring to it. Um, but I, I suppose something has made me feel like I've earned it. Yes, yeah, certainly since I started off being kind of Johnny comedian. And started doing this show. I've enjoyed all sorts of uh, uh, exciting benefits of uh, of staying in comedy. That's one of the things you've got to do, isn't it? You've just got to stay in it. Um, and of course, as the podcast has opened certain doors for me at festivals and things like that, I have then had to step up to appear on bills next to profile acts and very, very good acts. And I suppose I have to grudgingly admit, if I grudgingly back myself... I've been pretty, really good here and there. And um, so I suppose that I, d- I do feel like I, I would ask me on the podcast now. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I do. Um, uh, were I removed from it somehow? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, I think I've got a, a fairly decent uh, back catalogue of work now. I feel like I've made a little tiny bit of an impact um, not just from the podcast, but actually in my stand-up. I feel like I have, uh, uh, you know, I've been touring now for three or four years. And although I am not a, a mainstay of British television by any sense, there's a couple of fun things happening later this year. Oh, yeah, finally I get to be one of those people on the podcast that alludes to something in the future that I'm not going to talk about. There's hopefully two or three different um, fun things happening later this year. So, yes, thank you, Nathaniel, in answer to your question. I do feel like I've earned it now. People started a while ago respecting me in dressing rooms, and that's uh, very nice. And if they're too new, I always feel like, I get off, stop respecting me. Um, but it's, it is nice. It's, it's, it's uh, in its own small way, it feels like... A, a badge of merit somehow that uh, I oh god I mean this is I mean I can't record this in a room on my own this but I'm gonna have to get another human face to be sitting in the room because otherwise this is the most masturbatory experience I'm also wanking as I do this should I not be <laughs> my next interviewer is Tom Allen when I eventually became a comedian I became a solo street performer yes. I was like oh I'm this yes. I was evangelical about it and then I kind of felt I'd learned all I needed to learn. And then I became a stand-up and I went, thank God, I've that found felt. the thing. But I think two things stick out for me there is um, a feeling of being lost, perhaps, before, before you even start performing, when you're still training, um, and a feeling of being singular. You didn't have the buddy, you didn't have the mentor. And I think that's quite... Well, yeah. I know that resonates with me a lot, that there wasn't... Although I had some friends, I almost felt like I couldn't reach out to anybody who might be a buddy or a mentor. It was almost like um, this sort of dark night of the soul or whatever, where you have to go into yourself more and more, however uncomfortable that feels. I mean, and again, you talk about it quite harshly, but actually I think those times are quite important to us as as performers, and especially as comedians, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I I think um, I am so jealous of you know it's easy there's everyone's successful and and it's the, the mm. thing i'm most jealous of in comedy is the fact that tom neen and nish kumar and ed gamble all went to college together yes can you imagine yes that having this right. the thing i've just been talking <laughs> about if i was with my two best buddies uh, and we went through it all together for yeah. a couple of years and it was part of a structure and everyone was there to kind of i'm not saying they had it easy by any means not at all but 
community is so important to me. Yes, yeah. And yet I've always felt apart from community. Yeah. When I discovered Covent Garden, I was like, these people, people are like me. And to a certain extent, some of them were. I yes. probably over, uh, yes. overestimated yes. the we're all in mm. this together-ness yeah. of Covent Garden. Well, yeah, I'd say as well, actually, I only truly sort of felt at peace with being a comedian, actually, when you invited me to stay in that flat where we all lived in Edinburgh. Yeah. Actually, Nish was part of that. So Nish is clearly a very good... He's a real um, kingpin. Person, a kingpin. <laughs> that, that flat in Edinburgh, like I hadn't that. ever really done that before. When I'd gone up to Edinburgh... Oh, right. I didn't realise at the time that one of the things I desperately needed was the community within comedy. Yes. I would always stay with street yes, performers. Absolutely. Dear friends of mine, we'd have a wonderful time. Right. And that would be the only month of the year I'd see them anymore. Yeah. So I'd do that. But I, I realise now, you can't have it all, but I do realise now that in doing that and, and in, in inhabiting that and, and celebrating that, I wasn't doing the thing that most other comics were doing, which was living together as a bunch of five or six comedians and sharing the triumphs and successes. Yes and failures, and jealousies, and rivalries, sharing all of that stuff. Yes. And that would have been an opportunity to get a bit of that kind of, you know, Nish, Ed, and Tom, or, you know, that yeah. sort of thing is played out all over the place. Yeah. Finding that community and going towards that community would have really benefited me. And so I agree, when we lived in that house with uh, Joel Domit and Steve Dunn, mm. and Nat, and, and uh, James, and Nish, I loved that, and I felt, yeah. like, oh, can't we all yeah. stay forever? Yeah, like, it did know? feel like a really lovely experience, and um, Amy was there, your partner was there, uh, and it did feel like a nice community of people. And I think what I'd experienced leading up to that, because I found, I, I feel like we'll talk about Edinburgh a bit more, but I did find, I, when I first went to Edinburgh, I felt very scared and very alone and very um, uh, fearful of everything around me, and actually all I needed to do perhaps was reach out to the people who were there and go, hey, are you in the same boat? But somehow we put up you this wall that we don't. don't. because you're used to... Why is that? Because I, I was used to fending for myself, or I was used to yes. this sort of self-imposed rule that you've got to fix the problem yourself, which I suppose is maybe it's a gendered thing, maybe it's a kind of we're told as boys, you've yeah. got to sort this out yourself. Yeah. Whereas girls, I think, talk to each other and say, I'm having problems with this, what about you? Yeah. You know, I never really opened up like that yes. to very many people <clears throat> at all as a, as a kid. Yes. And so I have, it's one of those kind of, you only ever notice it about yourself afterwards. It's so good, it would be so useful to notice in the moment, I'm doing that thing again, where yeah. I, uh, where I kind of, desperately need a um i really need that um uh community and at the same time my need for it is pushing me away from it yes Ugh. what my dream is is to um have my own space where i can hear a party that i can go to if i want to but i'm basically in my own room so it's sort of like, yeah. I don't know what this world is. It's sort of like Melbourne Comedy Festival actually has a bit of it. But Do you think there is something about being a comedian where it satisfies that need to be adjacent to the party and able to drop into it? Because I wonder if for a while, when you're a comic, you get to go to places where other people are enjoying themselves. Yes. You turn up, you're, you're an important part of it, but you can leave and you can run away. I, I, I feel like that might yes. have been an attractive element of being a comedian to me. And it's an element that is no longer attractive. It's like it's like being the DJ at the party. You yes. turn up, you're the centre of attention, yes. but you leave, and what? And you are celebrated, mm. but you are also insulated from actually 
having to have those awkward moments where you get to know people. Yes. And you need those awkward moments, otherwise you don't get to know people. Yes, absolutely. I think we insulate ourselves against that potential pain by being... I mean, I don't know if this is exactly the right answer, but I think there's something about that where, yes, it's our controlled 20-minute set at the party where we get to be the intense centre of fun and then it's over and then you go home and then it's, you know, you're back to being on your own, which I don't, I don't know. It's sort of like a kind of halfway place we go to as a comedian, which is almost in the party, but not in the party. Like there's a, yeah. there's a step up between us and the, the people. Yeah. Not a step up, but it's a step away. And, and the reason that's like that, I need a community, yet I'm pulling, yet because I yes. need it, I'm pulling away from it. Like, yes. I think that does the same thing, that satisfies the same thing. I always thought with street performers, it seemed to me the longer I, the better I got to knew some of the people who'd been there longer and some of those people were very dysfunctional in the way they did their lives, the way they did their jobs and their relationship. Because at Covent Garden, you could go out, do something heroic, create a show out of nothing, out of no... Yeah, I don't mean the act, although sometimes that was the case, but create an audience out of no people, yeah. like draw a thing together. Yeah. This heroic thing, you, you pulled it off, you got given a load of applause and a, a, literally a bag of money... And then some people would then go to the pub and drink that money because actually right. what they needed was not applause and celebration. They needed some a community to look after them and say, yeah. this behaviour of yours, being brilliant for a moment and then crashing back down, yeah. is long-term deeply unhealthy. Do you think, yes. I mean, it is an interesting lifestyle, isn't it? And like famously, obviously, there are countless stories of people who've sort of uh, struggled with that. Um, because Because street and stand-up the same, the job, being excellent at the job, rewards you for for something, but it isn't the same as a healthy relationship. It's like, is it, is it like yes. um, stand-up is a bit like having a series of wild one-night stands? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's all very exciting, but it isn't the same as having to go through the machinations of an actual relationship and the learning and development that that... Yes, yeah. I think that's, I mean... I suppose it is that a lot of the time, isn't it? That sort of, uh, not a fear of intimacy, perhaps, but a fear of, I don't know what we might learn about ourselves. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, yeah. it'd be easy to sort of list off some, a fear of what it teaches us about ourselves or what it teaches us about who we are with other people or whatever. But do you think that kernel of, I mean, Joe Wharton says um, that uh, all comedy is the channeling of a private sadness, for example. Um, do you think that that kind of kernel of kind of, so, at least solitariness, if it's not sadness, do you think that's integral to all comedians or performers I think it's integral to me mm-hmm. um, I think it's uh, I think it's integral to a lot of the people I've spoken to 300 or thereabouts I think people are often running towards something or running away from something or desperate to prove something and a lot of the you know comedy is an inherently I, th- I think you need to be a very centred... I think you need to be a very centred and strong person not to be seduced by the sorts of things we're talking about in comedy. I think you need, yes. you would need to be... And th- those people do exist. I think you would need to be a very centred and happy person to be able to cheerfully go out and have the huge gig and the big success and, you know, to make it good, you've got... To make it really good, you've got to throw everything into it mm-hmm. and you have that and then you are able to happily go back to your family and be a nurturing person in your family, yes. with your friends, your friendship group or whatever. Yes. That takes an awful lot. It's almost like 
it's like being a weekend crackhead. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I take a lot of crack and uh, I'm really good at taking crack. But the thing about me is I know when to stop taking crack. That, that personality type is out there, but I think it's rare. Yeah. Um, it is interesting, isn't it? I don't quite know what the answer is there, but it's interesting, I find, to note that your, your sort of Genesis story is similar to mine. Um, it looks for... It sort of has a lot of those sort of traits of, oh, I don't seem to quite fit in in my school life, but there are these occasional moments when I can be. And even now, I still, I don't know if you're like this, I still struggle with the permission of it. So I'm like, no, I've got to be in my lessons. I should be doing, like... 100%. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think that's, I struggle with um, starting to write a new show because I think I'm like, no, no, you don't understand that I've got to do my technology coursework exactly I have to do my revision I have to write my coursework oh god is there anything worse than coursework homework that lasts for ages yeah yeah and I remember I know you talked about it in those terms as well I definitely remember saying to people in the first five years of becoming a comic once I had done the first hour Mm. and was aware that oh there need to be Mm. there needs to be a second third fourth fifth I, I remember saying to people yeah I mean it's great being a comedian but it's like having homework for the rest of your life Yes. You know, because unless you want to be purely a road act, not knocking that at all, yeah, there are people out there who look at Noel Britton, he's honed the perfect half an hour mm-hmm. over 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, that's this is absolutely diamond original perfect stuff that always works. Yes. Um, and that's that's great, that isn't what I want to do. But if I do want, if I want to do, if I want to continue creating, then I have to keep creating. Yes, that, yes. when you think of it like coursework, it's that is a painful sort oh, sorry, of... sorry, I sort of ruined it. No, 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 no. But no, what I mean is you've hit upon something that I was worried about, that, you know... Well, and I think, but I think as well, it's sort of in my mind, <coughs> it's sort of in my mind that uh, it's not, that the, the creative stuff isn't the coursework, but it's like, I can't create because I've got to do my schoolwork. Do you know what I mean? That sort of drummed into us so much. Um, so yes, there's always ma- kind of... Taking something which is like, hey, this is anything. Yeah. This is the most free and wonderful. This is like you've discovered yes. this kind of fountain out of which pour these incredible creative rainbows. You can do anything you want. And the cop in my head, the, mm. the student in my head goes, oh, good, well, I'd better take a little bit of that and I'd better start worrying about how I can mm. best turn that, how I can use that, build a structure yes. around it and formalise it. And, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. It, it could be yeah. anything. Yeah. But a lot of us, I think, from fear, we we end up going, oh, well, I'll... I'll I'll just take a little cupful of the magical rainbow yes, stuff, and, and then I'll, I'll try and sort of hammer it down, <laughs> flatten it, and sort of fit it into a tray so that it goes into it, so they're all the yes. same size. Yes, you know? the idea of just sort of dancing wildly in that sort of um, rain is, uh, is, I think, very. Um, I think it's very difficult, and we never really acknowledge that. And as we were talking earlier about, kind of, I, I'm sort of trying to work out what I should do living wise, and where I'd like to live, and, and what sort of place I'd like to live in. Um, it, it's very. Uh, I find it absolutely paralysing and not... Um, people are like, but it's so joyful, you should enjoy it. I'm like, it's not joyful at all, it's very painful, it's very stressful. Um, uh, and I think it's very difficult, isn't it, to sometimes just allow ourselves to go... Well, I think if we've had that sort of loneliness as well instilled in us from an early age, not in, a, not in every way, but like but a sort of a solitariness, I think it's hard to be like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a person in the party. Everybody's like, I'm fine with myself and I'm fine with other people. I think that's really difficult. Totally. Um, and, and we talk about childhood there, and of course I know you're a father now. Um, how much has it influenced your, your fathering? Not the actual act. <laughs> <fathering. laughs> your fathering, parenting, <laughs> parenting, parenting, parenting very, different very different things, things aren't they? <laughs> I really must learn those terms. <laughs> um, how... 
has parenting changed my comedy? Or, no, actually, how has your experience of growing up and feeling different and oh, feeling outside yeah. influenced you as a parent now? Yes, well, I, I, uh, I am very keen for my children to have emotional intelligence uh-huh. and I am very open with them emotionally. Mm-hmm. I try to be less open with them emotionally when I'm furious with them. Um, but uh, uh, I definitely am. They see me cry, oh, um, and uh, I. But even that, I. The danger is with me is they're going to see me cry too much. So I do have to. I do have to turn away. And hide. Um, no, they, not um, too much. They like my son, the Boutros, is um, is incredibly emotionally intelligent and amazingly articulate, and. Our kids, they're talkers, not walkers. Like he was, he was late to he was late to kind of physical acuity, which is absolutely fine now. But was talking very, very early. Oh, really? And communicating in an incredibly complex way that mm. you know, obviously, grandparents don't. You know, and are always going to go. Oh, oh, that's amazing! But yeah, visitors to the house go. Oh my god! And kind of open their eyes wide at how well he articulates precisely what he's thinking and puts it in the context of a story that someone else told and a plan he has for tomorrow and a thing we mentioned three weeks ago and he just forms these these astonishingly coherent things and is very open with his emotions and this is uh, I don't know I don't know if I've mentioned this in a post-amble, but my wife invented this thing of having a happy button. And she oh, goes, wow. Boutros, not his real name, Boutros, you're getting really grumpy. Can you find a happy button? Oh, and wow. so he goes, yeah, I think I'll maybe find a happy button in the, in, I think it's in the bedroom. And he'll run off and then he'll run back in. He's all happy because he found a happy button. <laughs> and that process, he is now clever. refined such that we can go, not every time, and he sometimes mm. takes cajoling and stuff, but he recognises, in a really CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy way, yeah. he recognises on some level, that his thoughts are responsible for his emotions. So we go, can you just... Un- you've flipped out. You've, you've, done, you've had a flip out with your lip out. That's what we call it. <laughs> you've got a flip out with your lip out. Can you unflip? And in the right, under the right circumstances, he can go from grumpy to unflipped. Like, oh, and right. And we're like, yeah, so there we go. So you're in charge. Yes, it's very clever. Yeah. Remarkable, so, which we didn't have in the 80s and 90s. We didn't have... We didn't have happy buttons we or didn't uh, have, unflipped. We didn't have Wi-Fi. No. <laughs> yeah, so I, I hope I'm passing that on. I oh, yeah. was always, pre-baby, worried about passing on a legacy of anxiety that I suffer. Like, oh. depression isn't really the thing I had, really. Sometimes there was bits of that. It was just chronic anxiety. And I always worried about having a kid and inescapably passing on to them okay. the anxiety. Yeah. And he is very like me. He really wears his heart on his sleeve. His mm. emotions just go boing, boing, you know, uh, up and yeah. down from, you know, like that unflip thing. Mm. Maybe it isn't healthy at all. But, um, but I'm very like, I can be in tears one minute and then over the moon the next minute. So uh, he's definitely like me, emotionally speaking. We're hoping his little sister is, takes after his mother in terms of her <laughs> kind of calmness and peacefulness and resonance. But, of course, the things that I pass on to him that will wreck him are other things I haven't even noticed. That's how it works with parents. You go, I don't want yes. my kid to grow up with that the, aspect of me. Right. So you put a lot of energy into that and right. in the meantime they grow up with some other, other aspect of you. Oh, I didn't have my eye on the ball there. Yeah. Well, that's part of being a balanced person, isn't it? Probably. And, um, and it sounds like, well, I like the idea of a happy button. I suppose that's what you are as a stand-up as well, of course. A happy button for a lot of people. <laughs> This is movie star pod fan, Brett Goldstein. Hi, Stuart Goldsmith. This is Brett Goldstein here. Um, Long-time listener. 
I've listened to every single episode. Uh, I guess the first question is obviously, are you happy? I'm going to ask it twice because the first time you'll probably go, yes, I am. And then I'm going to go, are you happy? And imagine me staring at you while I say that. Yeah, I I am happy. Um, Everybody asked if I was happy. Of course you did. And um, uh, this morning's been tough, but I am happy. How's that? (laughs) Uh, I am the rate at which I have a big tearful breakdown and feel like I can't cope with anything in my life has reduced from multiple times a week uh, at worst to broadly once every month and just recently I've been very tired and we're back up to one a week. But I th- So if that's a metric then yeah, I'm, I'm sort of doing okay, slightly tending at the moment towards, oh, oh, I can't cope, I can't cope, okay, okay, I can cope. A bit more like that. And far, far more moments of ecstatic joy. Joe Hollingworth says, what piece of advice from the podcast interviews have helped you the most in terms of your mental health? Uh, and the answer is the bit where Tim Vine says, it doesn't matter. And I said, what? And he said, nothing, nothing matters. Alan Ward says, did the right person win? Show me the funny. Um, 100% yes, absolutely. Patrick Monaghan was exactly the right person to win that TV show. And uh, I'm sure he did something brilliant and generous with the money because he's a wonderful person. Christian Thompson said, who would win in a hypothetical fist fight between you and John Robbins? Um, It's a sensational question. For those of you that don't know, John Robbins is a comedian who shares a semblance of my face and uh, is uh, rather aggravatingly doing much better than me these days. Um, I think in a hypothetical fist fight, and it would have to be hypothetical, we're, we're both, I think, lovers, not fighters. Um, I think what would happen is, I, f- I feel like I'd surprise him. I just feel like I'd be able to take Robbins. But then at the last minute, he'd probably turn out to have like a knife in his shoe or something, like something really low down and dirty. But then afterwards, as I lay bleeding out, he'd be overtaken with shame and end his own life. That's my guess. Glenn Lawrence says, White Horse, Royal Pug or other? This is a reference to Leamington Spa where I grew up. Uh, I used to briefly drink in the White Horse, but it, it was very full of... When I was at school and people were illegally drinking at school, lots of them went there. So it's always been tinged with the idea of there being people there I didn't necessarily want to run into. Um, the Royal Pug used to be called the Sozzle Sausage, but I used to drink in it before even that, but I can't remember what it was called back then. Uh, so the answer is neither Woodland Tavern. Oh, I had one more question. Does your wife listen to every episode of ComCom PodPod? And if so, is your postamble sometimes a way of communicating to her things you've been feeling that you've not been able to say to her face? And do you think that it helps your marriage? Or hinders it? Uh, that is a sensational question, uh, Brett, and the sort of one that only someone who's listened to every episode could come up with. The postamble is never an attempt to communicate things to my wife. It's never a conscious attempt. Okay, so yes, she listens to every episode. Um, the postamble is never a conscious attempt to communicate things to her that I'd rather not say, but it probably has happened once or twice. It certainly happened that her mother, uh, with whom I get on very well and is also a completist, um, uh, she has 
she's occasionally, for comic effect, pinned me down on something I didn't realise she knew, and I've realised too late uh, to defend myself that she has an insight into the inner workings of my mind and what specific things I've done. There was an episode a while ago where I talked about deliberately getting to a gig early uh, so that I could just get a break from the family. And uh, as I recorded that postamble, I thought, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I owe the listener the truth. And uh, and then, as I said, I hope I didn't bluster as a flap around too much. But, you know, that's not a comfortable thing to admit. I'm sure people out there have done worse and admitted worse. Um, so it has happened uh, from time to time that I have maybe regretted oversharing. Um, but no, it's never a conscious attempt to say stuff. I would hope that my marriage is secure enough that I could say things without relying on the filtered medium of tens of thousands of people. Abigail Shaman, what's the piece, lovely comic, lovely comic, what's the piece of advice slash knowledge that you've gotten doing this podcast that changed the way you approach stand-up? Also, I love the, I love the word gotten. Yeah, yeah, that's very good, isn't it? Thank you for that, Abigailia, but also for the question. Um, what, so what piece of advice slash knowledge uh, that you've gotten doing this podcast that changed the way you approach stand-up? I assume it's something from when you interviewed me, but... Uh, I'm going to let that clock tick for a minute. I should have prepared an answer for this. What is the... I think... Oh, this is evasive. I think it's not one particular piece of advice. I think the thing that's changed the way I do stand-up is all of the advice. Because all of the advice makes you realise that there is no right way to do it. Everyone has Uh, their own way of doing it. Anyone that says, well, you have to do this, or you're not a comedian until you do this, that's all bullshit. The advice is, everyone does it differently, therefore your way of doing it is right. I also think that... um as we were talking earlier about that kind of lostness, that kind of time we spend of like, I know there's something here, I don't really know what it is, which I know I certainly felt for at least 10 years when I started doing stand-up, and probably before then. Um, but I think that's why it takes long, a long time, because actually it's not... It doesn't exist in this kind of rules-based world. It doesn't exist in this kind of... You know, we live by a lot of kind of quite straight lines uh, these days, I think, and actually comedy is, exists because it falls between those lines it falls between everything it's a, it's just a thing it's a cloud it's an energy it's a it's a stuff it's a talking about things i think i agree i agree i'm really enjoying the phrase it's a cloud it's an energy it's a stuff it's, it's a, a stuff. talking about things it's a talking about <laughs> things another name for my book i feel i sometimes get uh, a a brief flash of a whole different perspective on the whole thing. Every so often, mm. I sort of peek into the infinite. I go, "Oh, oh, I, oh, I nearly got it then." You know, like a hint yeah. of nirvana, a hint of enlightenment. Yeah. Um, and I think that knowledge is the fact that I mean, Tim Vine said on this show he was talking about. Um, he was saying, no, no, "Nothing matters. None of it matters. Nothing matters." And I really like that. He, none of it matters. Yeah. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow. You will eventually get hit by a bus tomorrow. You know, there will be some moment when you're not around anymore. I don't mean that to mean kind of like, so who cares about anything? What I mean is, for all of the analysis that I can't help but doing, mm-hmm. for all of the interviews and the thoughts and how's it done and how's yes. it done, there is no how it's done. Yes. There is no it. Yes. It's all just a talking about things. <laughs> Do you yeah, know what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah. It's, um, 
there, there is no it. There is no defined version of what comedy is. And we're desperate to make sense of stuff. I, more than most, perhaps, am desperate to make sense mm. of it and understand it because yes. it, it comes from some fear in me that if I can just pin it down and go, ah, it's like this and you have to do this in order to succeed, mm. in order to not just succeed, but in order to be an artist, in order to be the right thing, in order to manifest yourself. Yes. You have to work it out and everything. And the truth is it cannot be worked out because it, no means of understanding what it is, mm. exists. And because it's littered with contradictions and because it's a bit like you, you were trying to control something which we can't control in the same way that we talk about going to a gig. It's like a party where we're in control for a bit and then we leave. It's not quite being at the party, is it? And so in the same way, you can't quite... You can't be like, I am a person, and I create this thing called comedy. It just has to be a reflection of whoever you are. I've yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do agree with that. But I also think the massive paradigm shift you get when you realise that a thing isn't as you thought it was. Like, you yes. know, a theatre person, you don't know about Brecht. Well, so I mean, I don't know Brecht, the, the, the Frendung's yeah. effect, the moment when you see your, uh, your former... Uh, teacher hounded by bailiffs and you have a sudden kind of yes. oh they're not just some person that's in charge of me they've got their own life and in certain circumstances they don't have the status yeah those that v effect that moment yeah. of, like that i feel like i often have them with stand-up where i go oh it's like we oh what's i, I can't i've got to articulate this it's oh, this isn't a sword, it's a boat. Do you know what I mean? Like yes, something where yes. it's so wildly different from yeah. how you were seeing it that yeah. all of your plans to use that sword are meaningless because... It's a boat. You, it's, a, it's a boat. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I that better. No, but I think you said it perfectly. <laughs> Again, you're too harsh on yourself, Stuart. We all are. We wouldn't be who we are if we weren't harsh. Um... And, um... What was the other one? Oh, Sarah... It's not... I'm sorry, I want to stand this just for a second. Like, it's not a sword, it's a boat... It's not. Um, it's not a, a, a shovel. It's a map. It's that different. It's <clears> that <throat> big of a ship. It's not just two objects. Sword and boat isn't enough. It's not. Um, it, it's not a, a a pencil. It's a February. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like one of those. You go. Oh, it's it's that far outside of the. Of, of the experience, and yet here we are all pretending it's a pencil and reviewing the pencil and rating the pencil. How how good is it at shading? Does it snap? Can you show? Oh, you can sharpen it. You spend ages learning different techniques to sharpen it. Doesn't matter because it's a February. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's that different. Yes. Hello, Stuart Herbie Treehead here. Right, I want to ask you a question about when you put stuff together and when you make stuff, and how. If you could take a risk on it or not, because you know it's going to be shocking and bad and rubbish, and you go, oh, it doesn't work. Oh, God. And then when you do it, it kind of half works, but it never works how you wanted it to work. Because uh, I made a life-size, uh, well, I'm in the middle of making, an even bigger uh, life-size sea lion that's bigger than the last one, and that didn't work, so I give it away to the audience. Oh, see, machines. Right, I'm going to try this again. So this is Herbie, and uh, by way of explanation, Herbie Treehead is a dear friend of mine uh, for many, many years. I met him as a street performer 25-odd years ago, and um, he is a, a constant inspiration. He's one of my mentors. He's one of the funniest performers I know. He's an incredibly natural street clown and 
uh, inventor and uh, engineer of the imagination. He's also, in the words of Pete Dobbing, someone who's unclear whether he is a genius that needs to be helped or a madman that needs to be stopped. So thank you for your question, Herbie. I listened to your numerous attempts and retakes at asking it, um, and I've left this one in as a sort of representative sample. I think that what you're getting at is, because I, I rang you and said, what are you talking about? Um, so I think the question, which is an excellent question that Herbie is posing, is sort of how much risk is too much, given that at one end of the scale is never taking a risk, doing the same thing, and that being inherently sort of boring and uncreative after a while. And at the other end of the scale is risk not just in a sort of a pure, performative, gleeful, jumping out of a plane kind of a risk, but also risking the chance of being rebooked, the chance of being paid, the chance of a festival organiser seeing you be bad because you're taking a risk and they don't necessarily have that context and they just think you are a bad performer. My personal answer to that question, and I think everyone's is different, my personal answer is, if, you, like, you know, you know inside if you are doing something which you shouldn't be doing, if you are going to a festival and it's an opportunity to take risks and you are falling back on older, safer stuff, you know that. And so it's just a case of how long you are prepared to trick yourself and try and lie to yourself and say, oh, no, it's uh, no, it's fine. There's a good reason for doing this. We can all come up with good reasons for playing safe. And to trust in yourself that you can go and be bad for a long time, ideally somewhere where the industry isn't going to see it, then we can tell. That's one of those. That's why Goliath people are so exciting. That's why clowns are so exciting and can be so horrendous to watch because they are comfortable failing. And that might not be great for that audience, but as part of the mission, the, the quest, you need to have a certain comfort in failure. Mike Dada says, whatever happened to the pretty one with the eyebrows? Uh, that's a reference to my dear friend and one-time uh, street performance double act partner, Noel Byrne. Uh, as you may know, Mike, Noel is uh, an excellent actor and uh, puppet maker and puppeteer. And uh, he and his wife perform shows every year at Edinburgh uh, under their, their company Boxtail Soup. And I highly recommend them. I've seen all of, oh, nearly all of their shows and they're always brilliant and innovative and fun. So if you're in Edinburgh this year, go and see Boxtail Soup. Nigel Lovell says, what would you say to Boutros if he said he wanted to be a stand-up comedian? Would you tell him to get a real job instead? It's a good question. Um, I would, of course, encourage him to do whatever he wants to do, because what else can you do? Um, if he wants to become a comic, I would completely be behind him. I would also, uh, without him noticing in a kind of karate kid wax on, wax off way, I would also make sure that he had another viable skill that he could earn money with in a self-employed concept where he was in charge of his own time to safeguard his comedy career. Catherine Moira-Smith asks, Aldershot West End Centre or Wembley slash Royal Albert Hall? In terms of which ones I've had most enjoyment playing, it's the Westie every time, although Wembley was a great deal of fun. Uh, if I was mega, mega successful and famous and had the choice to do either, uh, I would alternate. Andrew Gannon says, artist or entertainer? Halfway decent artist, is my answer. Gordon Darling says, are there any questions you regret not asking specific guests? Yes, constantly, all the time, the second I turn off the recording device. My next interviewer is Sindhu V. What would you rather be on stage? Yourself? And not necessarily super funny the whole time? Or just super funny? I, I know myself, how to do that. myself. 
I just want to be myself. There you go. And and if that isn't the funniest, most gag-driven product, I have to be fine with that because I don't want to... I, I can't... I'm sure I've tried along the way. I can't just say the funniest thing at the expense of what I actually think. I can't do it. I can feel my... I have an instinct to say a thing and then I'll go... I can't say that because I don't believe in it. Mm. Okay. So, you must have some nasty and dark thoughts from time to time. In general. Sure. Why is it never, ever, ever obvious on stage? Um, Ever. There are one or two moments where it has been obvious on stage, but it's never in the script. That's what I mean. I'm talking about in the script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I suppose because I'm scared of them because I'm I'm repressed and I worry that like I've got too much at stake socially like uh, oh god I knew I shouldn't have appeared on the podcast <laughs> um, part of it is the 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 contract I make with the contract I cannot help but make with the audience. If I'm really dark, okay, my, my big material, my big bit of material that got me into the finals of all the comedy competitions when I started uh, concluded in like a seven minute set with a four minute joke that I am not proud to call it this now, but ultimately it was a rape joke. Mm-hmm. And it was dark and the barb was pointed at me mm. but and I, and I god I sweated over making that joke work that joke would work in the majority of rooms in the majority of circumstances and I had to go through a fiery period of it not working and me seeming like a terrible person <laughs> and I made it it was technically strong and it had multiple kind of structural things whereby it worked I realise now loads of people oh, two huge revelations one is a technical one lots of people have taken the same route lots of men have taken the same route on the joke which is effectively I discover myself walking I realise that a woman walking home late at night is walking in front of me and in an attempt to make her not feel uncomfortable I cross the road but at the same time she happens to cross the road at the same time so now she thinks like now I'm and it's all about the it's an observation on the male problem the the like kind of the enlightened male problem of recognizing that oh shit that woman might think yeah. that I'm scary I would definitely be petrified sure sure well um but it's funny I've that heard, you guys are worrying about that well in that way that's kind maybe, of funny maybe maybe I don't feel like uh, I have the right anymore to say on that context in relationship to that word what's funny or not I really made it work, and it really fucking worked, and now I'm terribly embarrassed about that material, and I hate having to bring it up. But I think that's part of it. I I had that bit, and it was dark, in inverted commas, and it was really funny, and it was outrageous, and it got huge laughs, and I've dropped it, and I'll never go near it again, because I have realised that there's more at stake than me getting laughs, and one of the things when you do... One of the concepts when you do material about sexual assault is that a lot more people in the audience than I realised at the time. Sure. Not that it's a numbers game, but like sure. a fuck ton of people will have been through awful things like that, and I'm contributing to something really horrible by making light of it. So I feel like I did a dark thing, and it really, really worked. And now I'm like, I've had my eyes open since then to what a terrible thing that is. Which is... Having... 
Having well, said that, which is, good. which is good, which is good. The whole process seems right. Yeah, sure. I, like, yeah, sure. I, uh, I don't like to bring it up. It makes me cringe to think that I was a fucking idiot like that. But I was a white male stand-up in his 20s who was kind of feeling like he was having some really original edgy thoughts. You know what I mean? I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed as, as well as, you know, apologetic. But I do have material in, in the show that I'm taking to Edinburgh this year about the desire to hurl my children down the stairs. Oh, God. And it, and it feels... The, the anger that I'm tapping into, there's stuff in, in my show, like I mean it, about screaming with rage alone in your car, mm. and it never completely resonated with everyone at once, but I enjoyed saying it, and I enjoyed inhabiting it, and it helped me get something out. Yeah. When I talk about my problems on stage, the audience tend to be uncomfortable because they like me and they want me to be okay. That's my appraisal of it over the years yeah it's hard for me to get a laugh out of something terrible happening to me because they worry about me they they just like me it's like it's a it's a it's a discord it's like um yes you know the audience are like hey he's this friendly happy guy and if i talk about having been bullied or if i talk about feeling anxious they go oh oh the, the thing that trips up the laugh is them going Oh, you. Oh, you okay? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So they can't. They can't relax into it because uh, they think I should be okay. <laughs> but the stuff in I wrote a, a line which was in last year's show and came out, and will probably go back in this year's show, which was about how my plan as a younger man, pre-parenthood, was just have fun, have adventures. If all else fails, just stick your head in the oven. Right? That yeah, was like, it's fine. a great plan, by the way. Sure, it's a great I plan. Have that plan. <laughs> but now you have and, kids, you're like, that's the And now I have dead. kids. The line is now that I have kids, that's no longer an option. They have stolen from me even the luxury of suicide. Yes. And I love that line. It's a good line. It's hard. It's a fucking great line, objectively. But when I deliver it, unless I have put all of the prep in motion that they know I'm, I'm joking and it's always a tough bit. They don't like it. They don't laugh at what is objectively a funny line because it's coming out of my face and they like me and they want me to be okay. Yeah, and also you're very nice to deliver. Like, we don't even think that you think of a suicide because you're such a happy guy. Sure. You know, I could deliver a line about suicide. People are like, yeah, probably. Yes, you've got... You, you, <laughs> can, never... you can mind slapping your children in a way that makes them st- cheer. You know, uh, like I, I'm experimenting with this bit about like standing at the top of the stairs holding both of my children. Too much. That's too much. That's well, no, it is working. To be honest, I, I feel I, like I'm getting there. I think you could slip down the stairs with them, but you couldn't hurl them. I've got a, if you said that to me, I'd be like, "Stu, are you all right?" I've got a bit about the, the you know the story of is it Abraham and you know God telling him to yes, sacrifice his kid, kid. And, and at the last minute God going. Uh, hey, uh, you know, only, only kidding. Psych. And, but exactly, yeah. But in that moment, just before doing it, Abraham must have been thinking, "This is going to solve certain problems," <laughs> <laughs> like, because I am confronted with loving these two children know, so passionately, so and yet having terrible, murderous thoughts about them. So, so, so that there is a darkness coming Good. that I'm enjoying and inhabiting, but it is it is difficult to get away with it, given my character. Yes, and that's interesting, because I haven't seen the show, that's why I haven't seen it. That's sure. why I asked the question. If I'd seen it, I probably wouldn't have asked the question about, why are you never angry and dark on stage? Yeah, well, no, it's a fair question, because historically I haven't been. Yes. And, uh, and also, I think I made a, a, an, in retrospect, arrogant decision that as soon as I recognised as a, as a newer comic, as soon as I kind of clocked, oh, it's, when you complain about stuff, it's much easier to get laughs. I remember thinking, oh, well, that's... 
That's what everyone else does. Ah, I'm yeah, going to go left yeah. instead of right. That's a shortcut. I'm going to get laughs by being really positive about stuff because I, I want to, you know, I, I do have a positivity in me that I want, I want things to be good. I'm going to get laughs by celebrating stuff. Fucking idiot. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, like all of my best bits are, they have some element of, of death or danger or outrage or so, you know. But that's also because I think a lot of unexpected gut laughter comes from the recognition of pain. Yes. Pain, well, it's like what's pain it? Pain is, is it, a well. Is, 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 is it Mel well. Brooks? Uh, well, tragedy pain. is when I fall down a hole. Yeah. Comedy is when you fall, fall into down. a hole and die. die. You know, something yeah, something I can't exactly. 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 Yeah. But that thing is like it's always one place of pain. You have a very full life, as as do I. You've got a partner. You've got children. You know, you've got work full time. People say to me sometimes, oh, you draw so much from your personal life. Um, how do they feel about it? Now, your kids are too young, and who cares what they think? They're very, very small. But you don't... Do you draw a lot from other parts of your personal life that go in, into your shows, like, as in overtly? Or do you think all of what you're drawing on is very... Uh, it's not overt. Like, like, do you have a... Do you have... Do you ever think I'm going to get on stage and talk about a fight I had with my wife yesterday? Uh, I do. I do a bit. Not like a fight I had with her, because I do respect... She, You know, I put her through a lot of... You know, there was a show two years ago where I remember her saying to me, and it's kind of a joke between us that she refers back to that one. I said, yeah, I took a real kicking in that show. You know, it, yeah. it's... The stuff is... Uh, you know, it was about her misophonia, you know, her revulsion at the sound of me eating and what a light sleeper she was and how I had to creep into bed at night after I get yeah. back late. I felt I was making, not lots of sacrifices, but um, yeah, a few sacrifices. Yeah. I felt like married, like we lived together, but when we, we got married before we'd spent much time living together. Yes. So there was the, the inverted commas, fallout of, of that situation. So I did get kind of stuck in to her there to a certain extent. Are you extent. sweating out of nervousness to talk about your wife? Am I what, sorry? Sweating out of nervousness to talk about <laughs> your wife. Well, you know, I put her through a lot and um, she's lovely. And uh, sometimes I want to hurl her down the stairs as well. <laughs> you know? So here's my question. As a comic, if someone said to you, this bit is amazing, it's the funniest bit ever, but it does involve throwing your spouse under the bus, what would you do? I would have to talk to her about it. I wouldn't sacrifice her happiness for me getting loads of laughs on stage if it was going to make her really unhappy. You're like the nicest guy in the world. Well, I, that's just who I am. That's you know, so I, good, I, though. I, I wouldn't. Like, what's, you know, comedy is inherently a selfish thing. I spend a lot of time feeling like, hey, I'm a comedian, I'm doing a good thing, right? I make people laugh. Fuck off. You, I, comedy is selfish. I am up there getting laughs, like as if I'm jumping out of a plane going, wee, I get to do this. Oh, well, if I die jumping out of this plane and my kids all miss me and the rest of it, I can't support my family anymore, well, fuck them, because woo. I'm the important one. That's what comedy is. And, and I, I do feel that, and I, I inhabit that, and I go, you know, yeah, great, it's, it's exciting. But at the same time, I'm probably not so committed to it. Than, I'm sure we all know comics who, if their partner left them because of their job, they'd go, oh, well, woo, jump out of the plane again, you know, because that's the most important thing. Well, you know, comedy is incredibly important to me, and for a lot of my life, it's been my vocation and my calling. And I suppose now, with children in the mix, I feel like no, it's actually there. 
more important. Here's a dark line. I've got a line about how um, I, uh, I, I don't reveal my child's name on stage, and that's partly to safeguard his privacy, and partly because if he grows up and decides he doesn't want to be in all this material I've released, I can tell him he had a brother who died. Right? And that's a fucking good joke. <laughs> and, and it gets... It gets a it gets a, a woof and a oh and a hurt you know so but it's fun. a good joke I like it when I do stuff like it's that it's hilarious but I, a tiny part of me feels like oh you're fucking tempting fate there what you're doing yeah. with your kids does yeah yeah, yeah that's Terrain. true god damn that's true that's true I think the word death should not be there it it is a bit it's a funny bit but that's the bar the death that's that the is, whole that's, that's the, the you know, yeah, that's that the is, whole that's why it's funny I mean. I, it, it would be quite spectacular if you had a bit of material that was so bad that your wife chose to leave you. <laughs> that would be something else, right? We can... Well, I was going to say we can about hope. I didn't mean about her hoping leaving me. I meant we can but imagine I would have such a You such know, a but that's bit. a very interesting thing because it's like, well, you know, is it... I think being a family man and having to support your family through comedy puts a kind of pressure on comedy that is huge. Because not only is it that it has to work commercially, you have to think, do I want to push this boat out, you know, to be that funny? And yeah, do, because do you, it takes... Do you feel that acutely? Yes, absolutely. The, the travel takes me the fuck away from my family yeah. so that I can go off and do my snowboarding down a hill made of laughter. You know what I mean? Like, that, that, that's... That feels increasingly selfish. Saying goodbye to my son, I'm on the road now oh. for three days. But, but when I'm back, I'm going to be back for four days in a row. Yeah. You know. But that is a reality of a lot of people's work. It's just that I think you're discomedy a bit in the sense that, oh, it's just you having fun. I mean, there is some part of comedy that gives other people joy. I mean, the ones who are laughing, no? Yeah, sure. But, you know, but, but that, that is true of comedy, but it's not true of this, the individual it's like if, if you, Sindhu V, stop doing comedy, the world isn't going to suffer. No, no, but when you're on stage, it's not just you getting high. It's other people feel happy too. Well, yeah, but the most important person that in that sure. equation is oneself. Ergo, it is inherently selfish. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think comedy is really very entitled that I'm going to get on stage and say things that please listen to me. That's a big entitlement. Yes. And you're always pushing Yes, and I, well, I always saw that entitlement as... Um, the entitlement is about the fact that hey, I'm the I'm the one in the room that we should all listen to. But really, the entitlement is I'm prepared to. And you know, if you don't have children or dependents or you know, it is, it's all about bloody children, isn't it? Um, if you are a road warrior and you're just out there, you know, getting high on your own supply for your entire life, good for you. Yeah. But I always wanted kids, and I wanted to do comedy in part because it provides a freedom and a lifestyle whereby I can have the freedom to do what I want and uh, you know more so than because I wanted to use it to make me rich or because I wanted to play the biggest rooms in the world you know what I mean like I I suppose I had a, I had a, a moment a few years ago when I realised and this is a thing I, I may have said on the podcast before I've certainly said it conversationally to lots of comics which is that the best moment in the day of any comedian is when they have an idea for a new bit, they scribble it down, and they try it that night, and it feels amazing. That's like crack, I imagine. And <laughs> that is that feeling is the same for Patton Oswalt as it is for me. We get the same thrill. We get the same moment. You d ergo, you don't need to be rich and famous in yes. order to have the best bit that the rich and famous person has. Same crack. 
It's the same. We're on the same crack. It's Although I mean, that that may not be true. I suspect people in Hollywood, for example, get better crack than, than, than the likes of us. Well, it's the same high. This is Fern Brady. Doug Stanhope said comedians give the advice that they'd give to themselves. Have you noticed this when interviewing other comedians on the podcast? If yes, would you say the advice you'd give to yourself has changed since doing the podcast? Thanks, Fern. Um, yes, that's a great, that's a good point. I definitely give people the advice that I would give myself. I don't see how you could not do that. I think everyone. Uh, everyone's I mean that's why I I try not to give people advice I try not to give people specific advice and whenever acts get in touch with me and say what do you think about this I'm really anxious about caveating all advice I give by saying look this is what I think but it is it's the wind it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what anyone thinks apart from you Um, I'm reminded of that thing that Neil Gaiman said about whenever anyone gives you I think Clark McFarlane quoted this on the podcast. You remember Mario Queen of the Circus many years ago on the, on the, on the show? Um, he said, whenever anyone uh, points out that something is wrong, they're right. But whenever they tell you how to fix it, they're wrong. So I try to keep that in mind. I certainly find myself saying things to guests. Um, not that I advise guests on the show, but if I the, the ways in which I kind of prod guests on the show, where I say, "But have you considered this? And do you do you ever think that this might be the case?" Those are the sorts of things that I would give myself if I was able to be as objective about myself as I can about someone else's work. And of course, that's the problem. That's why you can. That's why the best director in the world isn't necessarily the best comic, because. Being able to spot the stuff in someone else is very different to being able to actually take action, to change it, to recognise it in yourself and to make that transformational. So, uh, yes, I do think I give people the advice I would uh, give myself, but I find it very hard to give myself that advice. I'd love to. I mean, wouldn't we all? That's surely universal. I would love to have the gumption to to manufacture in my own career the things I can breezily say to someone else in exactly the same way as I do that with people's happiness. You can say, I can tell someone, oh, you're a bit depressed, you should go for a run, far more easily than I can make myself go for a run. Katie Funnell says, who do I want to get on the pod that I've either not managed to get or who's unavailable due to death? I would love to have had Ian Cognito. I nearly rang him so many times and... Uh, there was no real reason why I didn't get round to it. It was just, just admin, you know. And uh, I will always regret not having Ian Cognito on the podcast. He'd have been wonderful. Fortunately, he's written a couple of books which you can still buy about him, his process, and what he thinks. But I'd love to have challenged him on how much he was being honest with us as a writer. Um, and I, I, I just thought he was a superb comedian. So that's gutting. In terms of other huge acts, I mean, I love The Lonely Island. I love Tenacious D. Uh, it would be a complete dream to have either of those on the show, uh, either of those uh, comedy musical collectives. Um, and uh, I'm sure there's loads more besides, but those are the ones that... And Jackie Chan, of course. Oh, dear Jackie. John Ryan Tracy left approximately 30 messages. Um, in the, let's do this one. In the Jeff Innocent episode, you said that he was one of the comedians you felt you could not stop doing the podcast without getting him on. Who else is on that list? Well... God, who else is on that list? Roger Monkhouse, Mick Ferry, um, Sophie Hagen. Um, 
I mean, these, you know, there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of people and I should have made a list of them all. Windsor, uh, who else? Quincy. Um, there are an enormous number of people. Uh, all of the remaining pythons. Um, uh, Marin. Who, I mean, you know, all, <laughs> most other comics who haven't been on it, who you can imagine. Yeah, I'd love to have them on it. Um, so I can't stop ever <laughs> until I'm dead. Ray Lamont says, what would your act be now if you'd stuck with street performance? God, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I would hope it would have... If I'd stuck with street performance, I would not have been able to keep doing circus stuff. Um, I'd have been at Edinburgh... I think I'd have been at Edinburgh seeing the vast majority of incredibly exciting, clowny-type acts, the Paul Currys, the Spencer Jones, the John Luke Roberts. I, I think it would have been some sort of verbal following act on the street. I think I would have ended up being just me with a mic, but not doing material, but kind of doing improv comedy with people around me. But that might have been a disaster and it maybe wouldn't have worked and I'd have got upset and given up. (laughs) Is that an answer? How do you feel about where you are at in comedy as a name now? As a name. As as a name. Like, you know, you say... Grateful but annoyed. <laughs> I'm grateful for what I've got, but I'm annoyed I haven't got more. Well, actually, let me just make it more blunt. Shall I be more blunt? Sure. Because I'm good at that. Do you feel you're a success? Definitely and absolutely not. Like, I simil- like minute by minute, I feel like, I've got this. I've got my thing. I've got the... I've got the podcast, I've got the live shows, I'm loving it, I'm doing exactly what I want to do, I've got creative freedom, and I don't have to work, I work hard, but I'm not, I see my mega successful friends be just worked until they're a shadow, you know. Okay, no, no, but no. at the same time, I feel like, I often, minute by minute, feel like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm one of those ones it didn't work out for. Okay, time out, let's back up. What do you think success looks like? When I say, do you think you're, you're a comedy success, what does that look like? Um, success being like? in demand such that you have to constantly turn things down because you're so busy. Okay. Um, being offered huge amounts of money to do the same work as you would do in a regular club for 20 minutes. Like to go, oh, this big gig would like you to come and do... This is one of those... But access to things that once you discover them, you're like, oh, is there this? Like, you right. know, yeah, you, yeah. like new circuits open up and people casually refer to them and you go, oh, oh, oh is there, is there yeah. a thing? Is there a special elite circuit where the money has four zeros on the end? You know, that yeah. kind of stuff. So being and, so and, busy and that you're turning down work, going to gigs that pay really well, yes. doing gigs that pay uh, really well. TV, obviously. Television. TV, Netflix special, all those Netflix kind of things. Special. And all of that because and leading back to the great sort of the, the loop doing all of that leading to the fact that you put a show on, it sells out. And then that success is when you can go, I'm putting on a show and holy shit, that venue sold out. I've got to put on another one. Okay. So that's what you think success is. Yes? Uh, let me think if there's anything else there because this feels like a trap question. It's let me not think. a trap question. I mean, obviously, having a wonderful family and being able to spend time with them, that's also success. Do you mean just professionally? I'm just talking about comedy. Okay, because I thought you were going to switch it on me and go, it's coming. but what it's a coming. love. <laughs> no, no, it's um, coming. So success in comedy, that is those and, and having an effect on other comics. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and having an affair. <laughs> <laughs> we're having, not... <laughs> n- knowing that other comics uh, appreciate you and look up to you and respect you and learn from you in the way that you look up to, appreciate, respect and learn from other comics. So you genuinely think that there are comics walking around who have all of this going on? Genuinely. Yeah. At least from what you can see. Definitely. Yeah. From what you can see. 
From what I can see, yeah. Okay. Now, the bit that the bit that you said that I very much agree with is being so busy that you yeah. could turn down work. Sure. So the premise of that is being so busy. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about being that busy that you are absolutely have no time for anything else? Oh, I don't. I don't think I fancy that. I mean, I you know. So then, should we take that out of the success well, equation? I want choice. I want to be able to turn down things and go. Actually, the most important thing to me, like. Um, <laughs> bless him, Rick Moranis. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Rick Moranis from mm-hmm. Honey I Shrunk oh, yeah, the Kids? Yeah, yeah. I, ble- I mean, bless him. I I'm just reading that book, Wild and Crazy Guys. So I'm oh all yeah, right. Over okay. That stuff so right Rick Moranis, huge, uh, you know, big comedy career, and then massive movies and stuff. And then his wife got ill, and I believe passed away. Yes, and, and he, he stepped away from all of it to look after his kids. Yes. Good guy, Rick Moranis. Right? Yes. Um, Rick Moranis, however, is not did not then become as successful as Bill Murray, for example, or Chevy sure. Chase, or so. Absolutely. I guess I'm trying to hone into this idea about success in the sense some some a lot of people who are very successful have never said no to work until they got yes. that stuff yes so how then will you have the choice and then become successful as well at some point you have to have no choice yeah, and just give up maybe, choice maybe. yeah yeah I, I value I value having choice over being worked to death but it would be nice to turn down some of the work <laughs> yeah yeah okay now, uh, let's come back to that thing. So how do you, do you think you are a success in comedy? I definitely, I definitely am a success, but the, the, the parameters are so, the goalposts move so much. No, that's not, I don't mean goalposts. I mean, it all depends upon your perspective, doesn't it? It all depends upon your point of view, which is why sometimes I feel like a big success and sometimes I feel like a big fat loser, you know? And I think that is, I know that that is common to all comics. And in the same way as the big best acts of uh, our generation or anyone's generation, you know, as I said a moment ago, they, they get to enjoy the new bit that worked and that kind of receptors, nerve endings kind of feeling. And I get that. I'm sure in the same way that at whatever point you are, you think, oh, but I want that. I want the next thing and I'm failing to get the next thing. Yeah, I think so. So we are all, this is going, it's very karmic, isn't it? Before, before we started recording, we had an hour-long conversation in which uh, Sindhu explained the concept of karma to me in a way that was very attractive, I have to say. Right. Have you always been this analytical? Yes. yes. And, and there was something very positive and uh, uh, just a really good feeling <laughs> he articulated poorly. Um, I thought everyone thought about comedy the way I did. And the more I did the podcast, the more it became clear that I was massively overanalyzing everything and always uh, have. Uh, and recognizing that whilst at the same, like recognizing that because I've discovered a good outlet for that critical thinking. Yes. Um, that was a very happy thing to work out. Like, oh, I'm, I'm weird and different even within the weirdos. Uh, you know, in one respect. Yeah, at least. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and the reason I know that is because I am being, to a small extent, celebrated for it. You go, oh, yes, I've used, I've got a special skill that actually people are finding useful. That's very nice. That is very nice. And I mean, surely you've got to feel good about the fact that you have this, the, the thing you've chosen to do, which is the podcast and which has done well and, you know, is, is part of your success, is also on its own, objectively, a massive resource for people who want who are trying to get into comedy. That is true. It's like a mini-university. Yes, that's true, and I am incandescently proud of that. As you should be. I really, really am. 
when I first realised, I did a I did a kids TV show in 2010, and there's a particular image of me as a kind of space future hero cyborg guy uh, with a bunch of robots in the background, and it's done by the guys that did all the the special effects and and by the photographer that did the Doctor Who thing. And I looked at that and I thought, no matter what happens to me, that exists. Yeah. If I die in a plane crash, I hope they use that <laughs> sod comedy. I hope they use that this space hero guy with all his robot friends. He died. Um, but in the same way, I remember in the, the growth of the podcast thinking, oh, this will outlive me. This is such a genuine resource that at some point I will eventually die. I mean, it, it might be if I live till I'm 90. You should stop bringing I mean, up death so much. <laughs> you see, people don't like it when I'm dark. No, but, you know, but can't just say, like, fall over and don't talk for six months or something, like, reasonable. You know, not well, death is very... No, 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 I mean death because that's the, no. fun, that's the, yeah, that's yeah. the, the end of... This. If you get kidnapped and we don't know where you are. Exactly. There oh you God, go. That's worse. much better. I'm forced to <laughs> in- interview underground uh, <laughs> mafia comics for a living for the rest of my days like Jesse in Breaking Bad. God. Um, uh, it'll outlive you, yes. It'll outlive me. It's good enough and valid enough that it'll outlive me. And I am of a mentality, clearly, whereby I never want to celebrate a good thing in case... The world notices and decides to squash it, as if that's how the world works. No, the more you celebrate the thing, that gets bigger. Yes, that's abundance, isn't it? I should try and live in abundance. I'm not very good at doing that. I'm not very practiced. I'm not very practiced. One should live in abundance. One should look, do all of more, everything. You know, don't worry. Don't don't be like a like me, this shriveled little pathetic (laughs) British man going. But if I if I admit that I think it's good, maybe it will be taken away from me. You know, that is my basic starting point. You know. So actually to go, this is fucking good, and I'm really proud of it, is, it is difficult. It is not in my nature to do that, but it is, I like it. And oh. I always end up apologising for it. Yeah, anyone, anyone that listens long term. I'm trying to get you to stop bringing the caveat at the end of it. You remember <laughs> the first time we met, how <clears throat> I lit up because... Yes, you were, oh, that was very exciting. And, and I was like, oh my God, Ishan, it's... This is another comic, Ishan Akbar was there, and he just knows everybody. He's just a social comic. And I was like, oh my God, it's Stu Goldsmith. And what I want, what I remember, I mean, what I want to tell you about that is not only does the podcast continue after you get kidnapped and are doing jokes in a cave somewhere, in a joke mine. but each of us carries a bit of the podcast in us. <laughs> we really do. I can remember the episodes. Like I told you about the tomato thing that I learned from listening yes, yes. to um, Joe Lyson and yeah. you. And everyone has a little story. And say, oh, I remember that from the podcast. Mm. So in a way... That's more than it just staying on, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a bigger thing. You're never going to admit it. I can barely get you to say one nice thing about yourself. So <laughs> I'm going to say it. Uh, but I think. But you see, for me, what's interesting is sometimes I look at that and I think, but that competes with the fact that you're also a stand-up and there's just you and your show. That to me is the real. That's why I asked about it because I it's think it's good because I ask questions, shut up, and listen, and those are not the skills that I employ on stage. And so I am, I'm aware that I have my comedy career that I've been working on my whole life and I have the podcast I've been doing for seven years. And I say this socially, the world, I've not said this on the pod before, I don't think, the world clearly gives a lot more of a fuck about the podcast than it does about my comedy career. Now, my comedy career is not scalable in the same way that the podcast is. My comedy career is not a niche in the way that the podcast is. So there are loads of totally sensible business-related marketing reasons why the podcast is, you know, downloaded millions of times all over the world in a way that my own comedy albums aren't, that's completely understandable. But 
the, the success of the podcast has given me a taste of what it is like to be one of those people whose work sets the room on fire. You know, I'm, through the podcast, I meet the hugest producers and festival directors and all the rest of it who are just excited to meet me because I'm the podcast guy. I don't meet the equivalent number of international people who are like, oh, you're that guy that does that joke about hamsters. Do you know what I mean? So, so but I know what it must feel like to be one of those. So in a way you want it all. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. I want to work incredibly hard and be see, really busy whilst being able to sit on my ass and play with my children. Yeah. Well, because you see, those of us who are comics and say that, you know, people say, oh, you're doing very well. We don't aspire to also having a global podcast. We're like... Yes, loads of you do. Not, not you specifically, but loads. There are, there, we all know there are people out there who aspire to literally everything. Yeah, no, not in this way. I don't think... I mean, I don't think they have... I don't think they have a podcast that's sort of working and they're like, why isn't this as important as the ComCom pod, you know? I don't no. think so. I think you want it all. And that's great. Hey, I'm a big, hello, put my hand up, big believer in having it all. But I think in a way that's a big ask from yourself. You want both things to be firing at the level of... Yes. I, yes, I do. I do. And, and, and the other thing with, uh, about the pod is that it is, it is giving do you mean it isn't selfish in the way that my comedy is selfish? So if one of them has to be huge, I'd rather it was the podcast because it genuinely does good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll always disagree about how much good we do when we're telling jokes on stage. I think we're always going to disagree about that. But um, good. I just think there's that whole, there's a real rub between you, stand-up Stu, and you... Come, 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 yes, too. and it does, and that it comes up in interviews because I get asked about the podcast, and so I get into podcast mode. And we all know the secret as a comic to doing interviews is to either ignore the question or take the question in a stupid way and get laughs and get laughs and be funny. As soon as someone mentions the podcast, I go into podcast mode, and it's a very different mode. And I end up having an interview with someone where I completely forget to riff and I just start asking all their questions seriously. I start answering their questions seriously. So it is, it is a weird, two hatted kind of an existence. Hello, Stuart. It's Josh Whittacombe here, and here are my questions. Number one, have you ever interviewed someone you don't rate on your podcast, and how did you deal with it? Because I got a very weird vibe off you last time we did the show. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. I cannot answer question one. Number two, how has interviewing comedians impacted on your own stand-up? I get the feeling you set out to discover the secrets of stand-up from doing your interviews. Is that fair? And have you done that? I think you're right. I did set out to discover the secrets of stand-up, and I feel like I have discovered lots, lots of them, but that doesn't mean... I think the act of discovery isn't the same as the act of incorporation. Whatever the thing is that I've heard most recently, I think, God, yeah, I should be doing that. So every time I speak to someone who's an improviser, I think, God, I should get into improv more. And every time I speak to someone who does one-liners, I think, do you know what? It really, if you just put the effort into you, you could write a load of one-liners. So discovering the secrets of how a lot of different elements of stand-up uh, work is useful in some ways. And in, the, in others, it's a, just a series of tiny millstones <laughs> that I'm wearing in a, a huge ornamental necklace. Um, so, yes, I think I have discovered lots of, some, you know, in, I mean, in context, few of, but, you know, several secrets of stand-up. Um, and... Uh, the extent to which it's impacted on my own stand-up is that I uh, 
very few of them are useful to me personally, but some of them really have been. The podcast is born as a result of my desire, my my obsession with overanalyzing stuff, my inability to just watch stand-up, and instead I have to analyze it all. And if anything, uh, it has taught me that I have to learn to stop doing that with my own stuff, and the less I analyze my own stuff and the more I simply play, the better I get. So that's how it's impacted on my own stand-up. Number three, of course. Are you happy? Yes, I am happy. Everyone, almost everyone that sent in a question asked me if I'm happy. Um, I am, but I am anxious. And I, the battle is between anxiety and happiness. I am very happy on stage when it's working. I'm very happy parenting when it's working. I'm very happy being in love when that's working. You know, I, all of these things in my life make me enormously happy. And uh, I get to do all of them and they they are very wonderful and I feel very fulfilled uh, and sometimes I slip back into anxiety-driven habits, thought habits, um, and those are not happiness. But, you know, you can't be happy all the time. Where would you put it? Laura Sorensen said, what's happening with everyone's a comedian? The format was fun and the pilot was very enjoyable. Well, Laura, the answer is I'm trying to get permission to have a live showing of the pilot that we recorded because the project is going no further. Uh, We had passes from everybody that could possibly make it and uh, I could conceivably make it myself, but it would mean putting an awful lot of time and... Well, it's just time. Time's the thing, isn't it? I want to be writing jokes rather than formatting a game show, I think. Um, so at the moment, I don't know if it's going forward. Uh, you know, that's the thing about time, isn't it? You are super passionate about a thing. Everyone says no. And certainly one of your options is to keep being passionate about it. But in the time it took everyone to say no, lots of other ideas occurred to me. So I might be pursuing them. I really, really want to show it to a live audience in a kind of like no one gets to keep it or take it away or download it because I, I don't think I actually own it. Um, own the, you know, the, the, the recording of the, the pilot that we did. Um, I'm trying to get permission to show it. So if you're listening to this and you can give grant me that permission, please do. Uh, I'd love to do like a, an Edinburgh special where we all get to see it. Sandy Smith asks lots of questions, um, but let's go with this. Her question number four says, do you have any techniques for when you feel you've run out of ideas? Yes, I just write true sentences. I just, I just try and when I've run out of ideas, which is frequently mostly due to the fear of running out of ideas, that, that's a kind of a creative choke on my, uh, on my flow. Um, then Choke On My Flow is the first album by my own uh, fake rap group. Um, I uh, What I do is I just write out true sentences about things I think and feel with no pressure to be funny. And before long, that has kind of led me down some sort of mental path whereby I'm, I find that I'm writing. John Forster says, do you reckon you could still do the beautiful stew tightrope bit by heart? Yes, but I don't think my knees could do the tightrope anymore. Christian Talbot says, if you were starting ConComPod now, do you think it might get drowned out by the flood of podcasts? Well, Christian, I think, yeah, I'd be scared to do that. But I also think that the joy of podcasting is you do a thing that interests you, you make it honest, and uh, it finds an audience. And it would probably take longer to find that audience because podcasting has gone absolutely bananas. I used to have to explain to people what a podcast was. Um, So, yes, it would, but it wouldn't stop me. Dimple Pow, hello Dimple, she says, in your darkest moment of wanting to quit comedy, what's been the thing that's kept you going? Probably the need for money. (laughs) Um, 
That's such a good question. There have been... Well, I, I've had dark moments. Very rarely do those dark moments make me think I should just quit. Almost never have I wanted to actually quit comedy. And the one or two times I've thought, I'll oh, fuck this for a game of soldiers... That feeling has never lasted very long because, I tell you what, fear. Fear is the answer. I remember who I was before I was a comic and I was like Mr. Messy from the Mr. Men. I was a jumble of conflicting fears and desires and I was a chaotic, I had a chaotic energy, not a chaotic joy that Sindhu describes, but I had a, a chaotic, panicky, anxious energy. And when I found street performing, that quieted and then it kind of built up again. And then when I found comedy, it really, really quieted. So the answer is the fear of who I was before. Oh, God. So that was me. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Thanks so much to everyone that took part. And um, thanks to all of my uh, recorded uh, uh, interviewers. Uh, they included, of course, Ricky Gervais, Nathaniel Metcalf, Herbie Treehead, James Acaster, Josh Widdicombe, Nish Kumar, Brett Goldstein, and uh, I think that was all of them. Uh, and, of course, my, my main interviewers who I met in person and who grilled me properly, Tom Allen, Sindhu V, and Sarah Millican. Thank you so much to all of you for your uh, contributions. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks to everyone that... Uh, contributed questions on Facebook. I'm sorry I couldn't get to all of them. Uh, and thank you to Nathan for his uh, his finest hour uh, putting together this huge episode of all the disparate bits that I sent him. So um, thank you very much, Nathan. Great work. Um, thanks to Jake Crossland for logging the episodes. Thank you to podcast consultant Peter Dobbing. The music was by Rob Smout, and you can get in touch with me, info at comedianscomedian.com or at comcompod across most of the socials. And that's almost everything. Just to say quickly, join the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to get hold of the, the three main interviews if you can bear to hear more of them we only used about half an hour from each one and there's a, a good solid hour and a half in each one so we'll uh, we'll chuck all those in um, and uh, and come to the Edinburgh Festival if you'd like to see the show that I've been talking about there the work in progress show it's called Primer just had an absolute Bobby Dazzler at the South End Comedy Festival um, where I also recorded a brilliant episode of this podcast with Jade Adams can't wait to bring you that one shortly um, but uh, I am in that kind of mid-July spring-in-my-step mode of going, I've got something quite special to take to Edinburgh, so I hope you'll come along and be a part of it. Three o'clock every day at the Monkey Barrel, apart from the middle Tuesday and Wednesday. But it's all on edfringe.com or thefringe.com if you're the cheeky Monkey Barrel Comedy Club, uh, or you can find out about it at comedianscomedian.com. That's everything. Thank you. You don't need to hear any more of my voice now. I hope you enjoyed that. <sighs> okay. It's all okay. No, no post amble today. Come on. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. It's been a lovely episode 300. Keep listening. We're going to do 300 more. I was going to ask, who's the biggest you've interviewed? But I knew you wouldn't use that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to answer that. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.